Wow. We are doing it, Colton. We made it. We made it through season one. <laughs> All right. Well, have we technically made it through season one if we haven't finished? If we, this is just the start of our recording? This is true. Okay. So we'll... <laughs> one of us we're almost perish <laughs> in, in the process of podcasting. <laughs> that is true. That is true. First ever death by podcast. Death by um, It could be. Before we start, I do have a question for you. Yes. Have you ordered the garden salad again? No, I have not. Since we last recorded, I have not ordered the garden salad again. You need to order the garden salad and you need to try it with the fruit mixed in. And I just need to know. (laughs) It's got the rind on it. Like, I would have to dismantle that part. I don't know. I think I'm just going to have to ask if when I do pick up, just like, (laughs) excuse me, I have a question about this salad. I don't know if I would have it in me to ask it pick up, because if that conversation doesn't go well, you can never eat there again, because you'll always be the weirdo that doesn't understand how salad works. I live four minutes from this place, and the other good thing about being married is that he can pick it up for me. Yeah, but how often do you eat there? Don't they, like, know you by your order? Not really, but my name is on the order, and they will have a chuckle at Crazy Salad Girl. But I'm fine with that, so long as I get my food, because the food's yummy. That's fair. I I would feel too awkward to do it, but if you would not, then I guess I respect that. I feel like I'm not... I feel like I'm not in... The wrong place to ask because it would be asking and be like what you i feel like if i were to bring this up to the people who like who work the front desk there they'd also be like yeah that is strange i don't know what you're supposed to do with that i i feel like they're kindred spirits i mean i would hope for that as well i would just be very very concerned that what happened like what if I'm the one who just doesn't understand how to salad and like I don't know I I'm would just be nervous. I'm pretty positive I'm in wouldn't. the right here. I'm pretty <laughs> positive I'm in the right. I am too. I just don't know <laughs> if I were in your position if I would be willing to gamble potentially not eating at the restaurant again out of awkwardness. Oh, oh, I I feel I would feel, if, because I feel so in the right here and I'm not I'm not saying things taste bad. I'm not complaining i'm asking a question i feel confident enough that i could ask the question and be like, oh okay funny answer and move on with my life i have that confidence and sometimes if you ask with enough confidence you automatically convince people that you're right water earth fire air long ago the four nations lived together in harmony Then, everything changed when the Fire Nation attacked. Only the Avatar, master of all four elements, could stop them. But when the world needed him most, he vanished. A hundred years passed and my brother and I discovered the new Avatar, an airbender named Aang. And although his airbending skills are great, he has a lot to learn before he's ready to save anyone. But I believe Aang can save the world. Hello and welcome to the Pie Show. I'm your host Kelly, and I'm Colton. And today we are 
starting to talk about the season one finale, The Siege of the North. We made it! (laughs) So these are chapters 19 and 20, Siege of the North, part one and part two. Our summary for part one is, after hunting his prey halfway around the world, Admiral Zhao zeroes in on Aang's location and prepares to lay siege to the entire northern water tribe. It's going down. It's going down. It's all going down at the North Pole. You know what's really interesting about this summary to me, though? With the first part of the summary, after hunting his prey halfway around the world, I almost expected to be Zuko, but it's not Zuko. It's Zhao. It's, it's not. It is all Zhao. I just, it's, to me, that's really cool. That's really, we've now officially, like, we've shifted over the focus of here is our villain. Like you say, Colton, you, the antagonist is not always the villain. Zhao's our villain. Zhao is our villain. I think the recap is really interesting this week because um, last week I was thinking about what would happen if someone started picking up watching the show with that episode and what they would think based on the recap going into it. And I think this week's recap kind of continues that and kind of treats, treats the show like there's only been one episode prior because everything we see is from last week. and. They don't vilify Zuko in the recap at all. It is all Zhao. Now, I'm pretty positive, but these were released, both parts, both chapters 19 and 20, on the same day, I believe. Like a, almost December like a movie. 2nd, almost like a movie. From what I remember, yep, December 2nd, 2005. Um, because I remember watching it for the very first time when it was on, and ha. It was over the top. It was, we are going to throw out all the stops at you. And I think in my perspective, like looking back, you know, as a, as a kid watching this at the time, it felt very much like this is season one. Do you want more? Do you want more of this show? Because we can give you more of this show. But if you don't, if this is not taking off, we are going to just blow it all up. (laughs) We're just going to give you everything we can. Um, And so it was really, it was really a wow moment. Yeah, it's a really, really big episode. I know I think it's interesting. Every week we talk about, you know, we talk about most of the episode that we're watching that week. And then we spend a fair bit of time talking about the battle at the end and how that almost always serves as a little microcosm of all of the major themes and events of that episode. The, The battles tend to mirror the plot events that they that lead up to them and this whole two-part episode is the battle at the end for season one yeah yeah this is actually uh michael dante di martino has ranked this as his favorite episode um because of just how how awesome a way it is to end the first book of this series well let's get into it then Woo! let's get into it Kelly, I know you really like tracking Katara's journey. Yes, I do. And all of her 
power-ups and level-ups level and just watching level her level grow in strength <laughs> over the show. I feel like this week we open with her oh. having leveled up. Yes. I, she's proven herself. And I love they point out, you know, raw talent alone is not enough. And I couldn't help but hearken to something we'll talk about later, which is Zuko talking about how his his firebending is mostly hard work and not necessarily raw natural talent. Oh, I. Wow. (laughs) And that, you know, Katara does have some natural talent in her, but this is through proven work ethic and constantly pushing herself to be the best that she can be and thinking outside the box and taking from other elements to perfect her craft. I think this is a record for how quickly into our recording you have made me want to go rewatch the episode (laughs) that I just watched. This is definitely a record. (laughs) (laughs) I thought you would have picked up on that parallel too. I I was a little busy looking at some other things to find that one particular parallel. I I would argue why, uh, and this, these two chapters together, I think really cement that it's really Katara and Zuko who antagonize each other and not necessarily Aang. Aang is just kind of part of this. He's the object that Zuko is chasing, but it's Katara who gets in Zuko's way every time. And they are so similar. In so many ways. Ooh, I like that. They're the ones that are really fighting. And Aang is just like the MacGuffin of it all. Yeah, yeah. Aang's like, okay, I don't get time for this. I got spirit world stuff to do. Uh, And meanwhile, Katara and Zuko. And that's where... This is the start of seeing those big battles between Katara and Zuko. And seeing the elements of fire and ice against each other. So I don't know if I necessarily agree with your theory on like an overarching show level, but I do think in this, in this episode in particular, that is definitely the case and definitely at play. I think they are very strong antagonists to each other. Do I think it's the overall show level? Probably not. That's, that's, that's not, but I would like to, I would like to argue that the two of them are great foils for each other and antagonists. And, this is where we're starting to get a bit more into that by seeing them. We see them fight at Katara's height of power and also at Zuko's height of power. And we'll get more into that later, but there's just something driving these two against each other. And that something is Aang and something is Aang, (laughs) but they're very similar. And so with uh, Katara's level up, I think it is so deserved I think she has been working her butt off and I love that she just all those boys who have only been fighting boys because girls weren't allowed to fight. And here's Katara just hitting them with like two flinching, like bam. Love it. Love and to the see it. Best Colton. out of all of them taking them all to school. Paku's best student. Yep. 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 Like, dude, you should have been teaching girls how to fight, like a lot sooner you would have seen some pretty cool stuff <laughs> yeah i feel like he learned his lesson i hope so 
Because again, like I think I talked about this in the Waterbending Master. I'm like, did he make this exception just for Katara? Or, you know, is he going to change his ways going forward? I don't know. And even in this school shop where we're seeing all the, you know, all the people that she just like whomped, uh, they're all boys. So. I I don't think at the end of Waterbending Master, Paku had necessarily changed his like larger societal yeah. view. Yeah. I think he had more just made an exception for Katara. And even but, if I'm thinking about it, like maybe the parents of those girls hadn't changed their larger societal societal views. So maybe. But I, I do think that as a result of teaching Katara and forming that closer relationship to her, mm-hmm. that she has changed his views. On some level. There's a lot that she has taught him. Yeah. Yeah. And I I do think that he's maybe slightly less misogynistic than when we first met him. He's softened. But will I I give him slightly less misogynistic? I don't know. Because that's that's like, you know, my wife's a girl. Like, you know what I mean? So... I, I, I think he's know. on the path. I think he's better. softened, and uh, maybe this is a road to an enlightening journey. That's probably a better way of saying what I was trying to say. <laughs> I got you. I got you. I love Sokka and Yue. <laughs> I love Sokka and Yue. I do too. It's so much fun to love them. Oh, they're just, it's just, it brings you back to a simpler time. You know? You know? I feel like the whole scene of the two of them going on their little date is like, it makes the rest of the episode hurt so much more. Because we get this moment of peace. Tell me, princess, now when did you last let your heart decide? No, Kelly, that's my part. (laughs) That is your part. Don't steal my parts. (laughs) You come in later in the second verse. Every moment, red letter. (laughs) But we get that here. Oh, it's so... It sounds a little different. It sounds more like Four Seasons. Oh, it is Four Seasons. It's just... uh, To me, it's just just that little sprinkle of doom right over there. It's so pretty. The doom. Did you listen to Autumn Leaves since the last episode? I did not. I've been really busy since we okay, recorded that. Okay. But it's on my list of things to do. Okay. I'll I'll have it for the retrospective. Okay. Good. Good. And and Better. we can talk about it there. But um If you haven't, I will stop us in the retrospective and make you listen to Autumn Leaves. Deal. Got it. Uh but I don't know if you picked up on it. There's that it, it plays four seasons for like five seconds. Like it just it runs through that the primary melody once. Yep. And then it shifts into Yue's theme. Mm. And it's it's a little more sweeping and classically romantic. Yeah. And sad. Oh, God. Yue's theme has such this this note of melancholy, of, of somberness. This touch of death, just like her. Yeah. 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 It's so funny that we're picking up on that little bit of touch of death and that sadness and doom and stuff. And I didn't realize until like watching this whole season finale 
how long it is before we get any of UA's backstory. Yeah. It's It's not until chapter 20, like deep in chapter 20, deep in part two of Siege of the North. Like after it's already affected the plot. Yes. Like we find out about it after it. Way later. Yeah. It's like backfilling in. Girl, lead with that. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Your little fun fact is you go around the classroom. I know, I know. I think I think if they led with it, it would give the episode an overall like a, a greater sense of mm. of doom to it because we yeah. would see we would see more of it coming. Yeah, we need some little bits of hope. But like, who walks around going like, "Oh, by the way, fun fact about me." <laughs> <laughs> but I, I do want to bring up. Um, with with this scene, the cute little date night scene with Sokka oh. and Yue, when he takes her flying on a sky bison, like, yes. way to set the bar high, buddy. Oh, yeah. Oh, And she yeah. loves it. Like, she's looking out on on the tribe, and she says, it's so beautiful up here. And she's referring to, like, the world. Mm-hmm. But if you look at Sokka, he's just staring goo-goo-eyed at her the oh. whole time. And he goes, yeah, it is. Because she's his world. Uh, well, doesn't he do that when he when he enters the Northern Water Tribe to begin with? He does. When it, when they're like, wow, it's so beautiful. He he says that when he's just looking at her passing, passing by. He is just enraptured by her. It's so very... It made me think of that scene in Tangled. Oh, yes. Oh. When Rapunzel's like looking out at all of the lanterns mm-hmm. and... Flynn is just staring at her. You were my dream. Oh, my yeah. God. And just, I love when Sokka, as much as he's like, you know, the guy who falls into every every ravine and, you know, can't, can't do anything, things hit him in the head, like, you know, gets attacked by turkey ducks, whatever. He's so suave when he's on top of Appa and he's like, yip, yip. Like, it's so suave, and especially, I'm thinking back to his other yip-yip moments, like, uh, when he's like, uh, Yahoo, and he's, like, (laughs) guessing the first, like, he's the one who's kind of figured out Appa, he's, like, the, you know, default driver. (laughs) I I definitely remember, like, my first watch of the show when I was not a Sokka fan, when I had not been enlightened by you, the glory (laughs) that is Sokka. Thinking when I when I got to this episode, like, oh, they're letting this character be competent. <laughs> well, like, that's what it is. Like, he's not the comedic relief at all in either part of this episode. Context matters. When he's with his sister and the 12-year-old, like, uh, prankster, yeah, he, j- he seems kind of goofy and derpy and everything like that, but... When he's around people his own age or even, say, adults in uh, moments of strategy and stuff like that, he can really turn it on. He is a lot more mature than you expect him to be. But I think the context of who he's with matters. Yeah. I don't know if you've seen that meme where it's like Sokka when he's when he's planning out the battle and stuff like that with with great minds and, you know, and the White Lotus and all this stuff. And he's, you know, so confident. And it's like Sokka when he's with Aang and they're trying to make Katara and Toph not fight anymore. And they're like, let's send a letter to the blind girl. 
<laughs> like, you know, the it, I think the context of who you were with matters sometimes as to the level of maturity and intelligence that you can be. I know there are some people that I when I hang out with them, I am so dumb. I I can't do anything. But there are other people who elevate my thinking. Um and and I sound I sound like I know what I'm talking about. Colton, you're somewhere in between there. <laughs> I was trying to think like which group do I fall into? <laughs> right in between. Because when we hang out in person, we're definitely a lot dumber than oh, when we're, we're so on the dumb. show. We're so dumb. <laughs> Like, not that we're, you know, paragons of intellect in this format. but <laughs> No, when we're in person, we're so stupid. Yeah. <laughs> but when we're talking over the phone and when we're talking uh, on our podcast, I'm like, like, wow, that was a really insightful take, Colton. So... This beautiful date moment. I know we've talked about how the music adds this little bit of doom, but then as as they're about to kiss and the snow is coming down, and then you see the transition to soot. And this is kind of a throwback to the flashback we get of Sokka when the Fire Nation attacked his home and he lost his mother and the siege that happened at the South. And, oh, it just, it hurt me. It hurt my soul. And as soon as the soot hit, he went from feeling safe and vulnerable and a love sick teen to a weathered, worn adult with his guard just right back up. Him and the gang have felt like this is the first place they can truly be safe and not worry, and kind of let that guard down. You know, Aang's rolling around in the snow with Momo. Katara is taking the time to not worry about protecting Aang or protecting Sokka, and she can focus on herself and do some self-care with her uh, learning her waterbending and perfecting her craft. And Sokka has felt like, I can hang with people my own age. I can fall in love with this beautiful girl. I can make a life here. And then all of that starts to come crashing down. I have a question for you about this. Yes. Do you think that this soot that's falling as snow Mm -hmm. is just a natural side effect of so many Fire Nation ships sailing in? Or do you think that this is a sort of psychological warfare trick that Zhao is pulling a move that he is making that he has calculated to steal away some of the spirit of the northern water tribe so i don't think it's intentional psychological warfare i think over the hundred years of this war it has it has become that in a way but also the northern water tribe as we learn haven't really seen Fire Nation soldiers in about like 85 years. So I think it's a natural byproduct. And it seems like something that because we've seen it on the Southern Water Tribe as well, it it's a natural byproduct. It doesn't seem intentional. But I think at a point after 100 years of war and having these invaders on people's land, 
that those who have traveled to places who have been colonized, that those who have lived through those attacks, they see that soot and it becomes a bit of psychological warfare because that is a, a, a trigger to the horrors that they have already seen. So I think the Fire Nations really nailed it on that end. Um <laughs> I don't think so it's it, more just general propaganda than it is like a yes. calculated tactical move. Yes, yes. And I also, I don't think that would be Zhao's calculated move. It seems it seems dramatic enough that it would be an Ozai thing. I feel like Ozai would release like some kind of like campaign about, you know, the about the black snow in a way of mm-hmm. um, to really put that fear and that drama and that uh overwhelming sense of doom and helplessness into the lives of people on the on the entire planet i don't know i feel like zhao is not petty but has that dramatic flair and sensibility about him he does wear a cape here is the expanse of my army we are so vast and so great that we black out the sun that you know it snows soot this is the guy who forced the colonel to open up his promotion letter mm. and read it to him is, when he knew what it said. And his capes are pretty sick. I The only reason I, I, I really think this would start with Ozai, though, is that Ozai came first. Ozai came before Zhao. Zhao would just kind of be like, yeah, I like your vibe, and, like, follow <laughs> along with it. And, like, really try and, like, drama it up. Maybe fan it a bit more. Uh, just to get it out there, so we could feel like Ozai. <laughs> he want, okay. He's an yeah, Ozai wannabe. <laughs> he <laughs> does want to be. He's an Ozai wannabe. Be gone, wannabe. Be gone. <laughs> I, like I do that like that that line that he pulls out, where he says that he'll be the one who destroyed the last of the water tribe. Ooh. Because we know that the Southern Water Tribe kind of exists. Yeah, like, you know, but it's they were limping along. Decimated. Yeah, and the Fire Nation doesn't consider them. Yeah, no, they're not a they're not a factor. They are not a uh force to be reckoned with. <laughs> Except you know, they don't even know Katara exists. They thought they squashed out the last of the waterbenders from the Southern Water Tribe until very, very recently. And even and, then, and what's one little girl going to do against an entire Fire Nation? We shall see. And that's the thing. Like, we talked so much in other episodes about Zuko underestimating his opponent. And, like, that was that was a theme and a through line earlier on in the season. But I don't think in this episode it's, like, Zuko is not the only one us underestimating his opponent. The Fire Nation is is underestimating their opponents. They may they may outnumber them, but they're not going to outmatch them. Yeah, I mean, they're not even considering the existence of the Southern Water Tribe, yet Sokka and Katara are largely the ones bringing about this, like, the Northern Water Tribe's ability to stand in this battle. Yeah, they're the ones who've been there. They're the ones who've seen it. Um, again, 85 years since the last time they've seen a Fire Nation soldier, because to the Fire Nation, it really hasn't been that important i also i get the feeling and i think we talk about this later um it's more cemented that the northern water tribe hasn't really entered this war 
they've been kind of off by themselves. Um, and they have a lot of fighters available to them. Whereas the Southern Water Tribe, they sent out their whole their whole group of fighters to fight the Fire Nation. And feels like they're very alone in this. Yeah. Um, the Northern Water Tribe has kind of isolated themselves. And they were like, well, if we're fine, we can be fine. We're, we're not going to involve ourselves in that mess. They'll stay away from us. We stay away from them and we can get by. So now you can't. Sorry. <laughs> sorry, not sorry. Zhao is coming. He's coming. There was a really interesting moment with Iroh and Zhao, where Zhao talks about Iroh attacking Ba Sing Se and how his will be better. He will complete it. He will win it. And Iroh says, I hope not for your sake. And I just thought that was really interesting. And it really, it's starting to leave the breadcrumbs there for, you know, we want to, it makes you want to learn more about Iroh's background and the complicated feelings he might have about Ba Sing Se and what's going on there. Why would you say that? You know? Yeah, I feel like on on the surface, we do find out later this episode that, you know, Iroh lost his son. Um, mm-hmm. And and we know that that happened in the siege of Ba Sing Se. Because, mm-hmm. you know, we've seen the show before. Yep. And I think it's it's very easy to draw that comparison of, like, Iroh lost something deeply important to him in that siege. And he doesn't want Zhao to lose the same. Mm. But d- digging a little deeper, Zhao is talking about how the siege of the north will be victorious, not a failure. Yeah. And... So Iroh's maybe wishing, like, I don't think Zhao is here. I think Zhao is hearing that Iroh is hoping that Zhao does not experience a similar loss to the loss that Iroh experienced. Mm-hmm. But I think what Iroh is saying is more almost, I'm lucky I didn't win. Yes. Yes. That's what I picked up on too. Like I've learned, like I've learned, it felt very, I've learned I was wrong. I shouldn't yeah. have tried to take bossing say. And I'm like, wait, are you a good, like, this is the first time, like, when I first watched it that I was like, wait, are you a good guy? Like, I know, I know you're, I know you're dealing with Zuko and helping him be a little bit better and stuff like that at, like, his issues. But the first time that I'm like, wait, is he a secret good guy? Mm-hmm. Not just, you know, antagonist, you know, I know he wasn't a villain, but he might truly not be on the now- side of the fire nation itself yeah i mean he's mostly been presented as kind of eccentric this is the first very Mm -hmm. overt like what you're doing like iroh saying to the fire nation what you're doing is wrong yes yes so he like he wasn't he wasn't bothered enough to not be a part of the fire nation still and not be um actively working with fire nation soldiers and and capturing the avatar and that stuff but he might actually be against the goals and missions of the fire nation itself yeah well i think at this point he's acting you know he's using his role as an advisor to try to steer things in the direction that he thinks is better yes he he still has hope that he can but i but it's interesting because as a viewer you don't know what the better is yet like is it 
less destruction of life? Is it, you know, or is it you don't want the Fire Nation to control the whole world? What is it? Yeah. Or honestly, at this point, you know, he hasn't really stated his position that his actual position that strongly. He's only stated like oppositions. Maybe he's okay with the Fire Nation controlling the world if they just do so in a more diplomatic way. Yeah. Yeah. So where is he in relationship to the Fire Nation mission statement? I think we find out later in the episode. <laughs> so we have this this scene where uh, Chief Arnook addresses the Northern Water Tribe. Mm-hmm. And the gang is there, and this scene just... Talk about a sense of doom. Katara and Aang are both looking up at the chief with these big, hopeful eyes of like, yeah, we got this. We can fight. And Sokka's looking at the ground. And I don't, I, I know we had, I know he had a rough day and UA had just said, you know, that she can't be around him because her feelings are too complicated for him while she's engaged. Like she's just, she can't trust herself around him. And that's upsetting and everything. But I think what's more upsetting to him is his childhood nightmare is real again. And he's lived through this oh so vividly before. And he feels powerless. He feels like that little kid with the face paint on and boomerang in hand, but can't do anything to stop the Fire Nation. Yeah. Oh, God. He finally found a place where he feels... That he can be safe. That, like you said, he can have a life. And now this haven and is gone. It's all of it is crumbling to pieces around him. I feel like to him, as soon as that started falling, it's all gone. It's gone. And he, I think he feels stupid of like, why did I even trust that I could be feel safe here? Why, why did I even believe that that was an option? And he's mad at himself. Yeah. Um. Yeah, it's just... Ugh. I'm so glad that I can enlighten you to Sokka because I'm sure that the first time you watched this, you were just like, oh, buddy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, it's not about you. <laughs> but he's had a rough time. Yeah. He just can't win. He tries so hard. He's like the Donald Duck. He tries so hard <laughs> and feels so spectacularly so many times. But he just keeps getting back up and trying over and over again. Yeah. And talk about answering the call. Oh, he steps up when they're like, any soldiers to volunteer for the front lines? And he's like, me, just right up there. Oh, I do think this is different, though, than the other times we've seen him step up. Mm -hmm. Every time that we've seen him step up in the past, he has stepped up out of a desire to prove himself. This is so soberly like this. I feel like for him, he's like, this is what my life has been leading to. Yeah, this is this is not. He is not rising to meet anyone's expectations. He is not trying to prove himself to anyone. He is simply accepting that, you know, I can't have what I want. Maybe this is a way I can do some good. What's also really interesting is that He decides he's going to join the front lines with everybody else. His goal, his dream, he was going to be a water tribe soldier. He couldn't be that with the Southern Water Tribe. I'm going to be that with the Northern Water Tribe. 
I'm going to be one of a group. He could have been part of Team Avatar with, you know, Katara and Aang. He could have, you know, been the guy to help them. But he said, no, none of that. I am going to be soldier number three and and face what my journey has been leading to. I think for him, when he hears Grand Grand's message of like what he's supposed to do, this to him is what he thinks his destiny is. I don't think he expected to make it out of this battle. Oh, I don't think so. Yeah, no. He signed up to give his life to this battle. This this is what he can do. And I really like that Aang and Katara let him. Yeah. That's really, they respect his choice. Ugh, just get so many more Sokka feelings all over again. Didn't expect to make it. Also, the marks on, on the head are very similar, the same kind of marks that Bato uses when he marks them. The warriors. Consistent world building. Consistent world building. There is this moment in Chief Arnook's speech in which he says, some of these faces are about to vanish from our tribe. And it, it, and it flashes to three different faces. Yue, Master Paku, and Han. And fun fact, these three faces do vanish from the tribe. Yeah, that was really on nose. Yeah, I know, I know it was, but... At the time when I was watching it the first time, I was like, oh, who is it going to be? Because you think it's going to be one of the three, except you don't know who the third guy is yet. Um, but he looks very similar to a Sokka-ish. It would have been really interesting if, say, instead of Han, they had flashed to Sokka. Because technically, he doesn't come back there ever again. But that would have built some, like, serious suspense. Yeah, I do. I'm I don't just, know. Even I'm though just, we don't really know Han into yet. my head, and I just was like, oh... Yeah, even though we don't really know Han yet, I feel like having him in that lineup adds a bit more weight when we do meet him. Mm. And it it raises the stakes for the Northern Water Tribe. We yeah. already have an emotional investment in Sokka. We don't need this moment to to add to that. Yeah. But we could probably use a bit more a bit more weight behind the loss that the Northern Water Tribe is about to experience. Yeah. And Siege of the North is the first time where, like, multiple people die. Yeah. is the Just straight up. Like, it's very clear that multiple people die in this in this finale. Um, but to go back to the three people. So Yue, she obviously becomes the moon spirit, as we know. Um, and so we don't see her face again. Paku, Master Paku after this, decides to leave for the Southern Water Tribe and re- reunite with Grand Grand. And Han is flung from a Fire Nation ship and never heard from again. Yeah, we hear a splash. We hear a splash, but... um, He's pretty high up. Who knows? It's pretty high up, yeah. Mm-hmm. He's not a bender, so he's not going to catch himself in the water. And Yeah, and yeah. you know, when you're high up, water hurts. Anyways, but uh, those are the three faces that vanish from their tribe. Another part of his speech that I just want to point out is spirit of the ocean, spirit of the moon, be with us. And they are. Yeah, they 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 very much are. They show up before the end. <laughs> and it's so funny how 
I know even in this rewatch, like I didn't take too much of that at first of like, oh, okay. It's, you know, like um, the Lord be with us type of thing. You know what I mean? But you don't expect like the Lord is like sitting on your living room couch. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> this is <laughs> spirit of the ocean, spirit of the moon. They're just chilling. Like we learn spirit of the moon, spirit of the ocean, just chilling with them. Yeah, we're here. <laughs> just, just hanging out. Swimming Call in us pond. when you need us. <laughs> yeah. Already there. So this is kind of a uh, a big moment for Aang. Mm, yeah. He's got to... I feel like this is really where he needs to prove himself as the Avatar. I mean, he's had like little moments and little adventures of proving he could do Avatar stuff. But this is... You're saving an entire culture here. I feel like Aang really feels the weight of not just the air nomads in this moment. I think he feels the weight of the Southern Water Tribe because he, you know, a hundred years ago, he ran away. The air nomads were all wiped out. And in the time since, the Southern Water Tribe was wiped out. I don't think he's directly responsible. I think, you know, the Fire Nation invaded. The Fire Nation did that. But he might have made a difference in either of those fights. And I think he feels some of the guilt that he wasn't there either of those times, and that is his primary motivation going into this battle. I like that you point that out, and he he says, you know, I'm going to make a difference this time, and then we get the shot that reminds very much of the intro, like, looking from behind out at the the horizon, and I think it's important for me to point out is that Katara is the one telling that story in the intro, And you saying him feeling the weight of the Southern Water Tribe as well. This is how she remembers him. Feeling the weight of his culture and her culture. And the two of them standing together to make a difference. And that's how she chooses to remember Aang. Well, now you made me want to rewatch (laughs) the whole show. Two. I counted two times you've said that now. (laughs) Uh, Keep a counter running this episode. (laughs) But that's how she chooses to remember him. Her hero. You're so right, I it is. And can change the world. And can save the world. She believes. She believes in him. And when he says, I, I'm going to make a difference this time, she believes it. She's there right by his side, ready to do it. And the music underscores do, that because it does do, the same. Do, do. Yeah. Yep. yep. Yeah. But like, it's they play that at a lot of different points in a lot of different episodes, but it's never quite what we hear uh-huh. in the intro, but this time it's like this exactly intro, what we hear in the this intro. this is the shot with the glider and looking up at... Mm-hmm. Uh, uh-huh. <laughs> From behind okay, him where she's long. standing. Yep. And like the background is different because he's kind of looking over a cliff in the yep. intro, but he's standing the same way and the wind is blowing yep. the same way. Yep. And it's her telling the story. <sighs> yeah. Oh, that's yeah. good. That is good. <laughs> it just... Uh, it hit me. It just, it really gave me chills. Colton, I don't know if I consider this the battle at the end yet. We get our first strike, but I wouldn't consider this the battle at the end of part one. Okay, this is the battle at the end for the season. Okay. But it's not the battle at the end for the episode. Yes. Because there are like, we have like nested battles at the end, 
Because Battle at the End for Part 1 does happen. <laughs> but Battle at the End for Part 2 also happens. But Battle at the End for Parts 1 and 2 as a single bit is distinct from those two other battles and happens. But the whole thing is a battle for the seat. Like, it's... We have fractals of battles. Yes. This this is very much like, win the battle, but what about the war? But it's its yeah. own subset, because it's not the war against the whole Fire Nation. I don't know. It's battles all the way down. It's battle. It's just battles From on battles here on until battles. the end, it's battles all the way down. Hey, bro, I heard you like battles, so I put a battle in the battle with the battle. <laughs> So the fir- But we agree this is the first strike. <laughs> this is the first strike. And the first strike hits the moon symbol on the wall to the to the Northern Water Tribe. I did not catch that <laughs> until I went to put my notes in the document and I saw that you wrote that and I was like, oh my god, it does. I will give credit to my husband who paused and say, Hey, did you see they hit right through that moon? <laughs> So I will give him the credit on that. And I was like, whoa. So do you think that was a tactical strike by Zhao? (laughs) I don't think it was a tactical strike by Zhao because Zhao sent, wasn't even on that ship. This ship was, so I have some thoughts on this ship as a whole. What are your thoughts? Do you think these are non-benders on this first ship? I do. They don't bend. Yeah, they don't bend. They're all attacking with hammers. Also, did you notice the color of the uniforms are different as well? They're the whole uniforms are different. It's not just the color. They're yeah. like a different design. Yeah, it's a different design. It feels very um, Rough Riders to me. Is that what they're called? The that we see later, the yeah. ones that ride the Komodo rhinos and everything. Yeah. Um, I mean, Ponytail Man with his hammer on the on the chain that he throws out and everything. It feels like, like, you know, you don't send in your elite force yeah. first. You send in, like, Disposable. the conscripts, yeah. the disposables, the mercenaries. And for, like, yes. like, Zhao paid these guys a little bit of money, and then he promised them more after the battle. But exactly. he sent them in first, so they yes. died, so he doesn't have to pay them. Agreed, agreed. Yeah, I thought, now that was a really interesting tactic to choose. Yeah, I do. I will say I do think that he told them, like, aim, aim for the logo. (laughs) That does sound sound like something he'd say. Like, maybe he told them beforehand. Maybe he saw it and sent a messenger hawk. Either that or ponytail guy was like, oh, cool. They set up a target. (laughs) (laughs) And these these seem to be people who they're probably because they're not benders. They have studied these new war machines a bit more than say the actual benders um because they have the the catapults and such trebuchets trebuchets yes but i thought that was a really interesting tactic and i was i was really excited that i picked up on the different uniforms because i don't think i'd ever noticed that before really i would expect you to be in touch with like the wardrobe design that's normally your thing i know that is normally my thing but i think i was more like paying attention to the mechanics of what ang was doing to take down this whole ship than the actual wardrobe itself um and i will say sometimes when you see a battle like this 
I don't think before I looked at the Fire Nation soldiers as individuals. I looked at them more as, oh, there's another like red shirt. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's another person who's going to be thrown into the water. But now using a critical eye and uh, taking a step back and looking at the thing as a whole, I can see those little differences. And it's really cool. And it's going to make me look for more of those costume differences in the future to see if I can see like different ranks and different, you know, and pay attention to how that costuming is speaking to the viewer in a way that the viewer doesn't even pick up on. I do think that we're supposed to read these, these particular troops as like separate from the larger army, Mm. because in addition to all of that, they're not wearing fire nation masks. Yeah. We see their faces. Mm -hmm. Which the the other time I can think of the people who wear the masks and the people who don't wear the masks is when I was talking about the people who are working in the colonies and living in the colonies. Yeah. They don't wear the masks. But the people who are, you know, the stormtrooper-esque and everything, they're the ones wearing the mask. So I want to see these costumes again. And I want to see, I want to see this, like, portion. Like, you know, we had the UN archers and everything. Um it's interesting to see how the Fire Nation utilizes non-vendors. So the Northern Water Tribe has a great plan. Great, quote-unquote, plan. They have a plan. They have a plan. To uh, handle this fire nation. (laughs) And I love when they're like, huh, we've got, this is our secret weapon. This is what we're going to do. We have these fire nation uniforms. And Sokka's just like, fire nation doesn't wear those anymore. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, when did you last get those? Like a hundred years. They haven't had points on their shoulders since like the last hundred years. When did you guys get those? And they're like, 85 years ago. He's like, oh. Their primary objective is to identify the commanding officer. And, and Sokka's like, yeah, we got that. <laughs> Zhao, he's uh, tall, he's brown hair. I really like the reversal here because while this whole thing is happening, Sokka's theme is playing. Mm-hmm. And they use the underscore as a way to like, you know, in this situation, Chief Arnook is the man with the plan and he's the one that's putting everything together. And he's being what we have come to associate with Sokka thus far. And in a, in, you know, very much like Sokka has experienced, Chief Arnick kind of makes a bit of a fool of himself and falls on his face. Well, what's so interesting to me is that Sokka has signed up to be one of many. He says, I am no different than anyone else here. I will be your average soldier This is what I want to be. But all his experience traveling with Team Avatar, being part of the gang and seeing how the world works, figuring out the air, the Fire Nation balloons, figuring out um, how to stop jet. All these different elements have built him so that he has surpassed the role that he wanted to be. He wanted to be an everyday warrior, one, one of many. And he goes there and he stands there and he's ready to do his part. And he's like, um, wait a second, you guys, 
hold up. This this is not going to work. This is he he has too much knowledge to be that nondescript soldier. He's outranked himself. And it's really interesting to see going forward from this siege where he will place himself in the field of battle going forward, because I don't think he really puts himself on that footing again, because he can see himself as capable of more. He hasn't seen that before. He hasn't had that faith in himself. He thinks nothing has really changed for him. But in hearing the Northern Water Tribe describe their plan, he's like, that's some elementary, elementary stuff, bro. That is not going to cut it. And it's what he would have done at the very, very beginning. Yeah. And I think it's especially after seeing just a couple weeks ago, his interactions with Bato, like it, it's extra strong because so much of that episode was him feeling that he didn't yet have that experience. And I think it's, I think it's fair to say that even when the Southern Water Tribe had their warriors, had that standing army, they were maybe half a step down, maybe more from the Northern Water Tribe, at least in Sokka's mind. Yeah, especially because I, you pointed out the Bato when Bato's like, yeah, no, we should turn back. I think we're done with this exercise. And Sokka's like, no, I'm keeping going. Katara, Aang, lift this, lift that. We're doing this. And he pushes through anyways. He is, this is Sokka's level up. Like, you don't even see it. His is a lot more subtle of what he's learning and when. Katara, you can see her learning because you see her physical water bending changing. Sokka, he doesn't have a physical manifestation of his leveling up. You have to pay attention to the choices that he makes as opposed to seeing anything physically. Yeah. I do think it's also really interesting that, you know, he is the only one in this room with practical experience fighting the modern day Fire Nation. And I all it makes me wonder how screwed the Northern Water Tribe would have been if he hadn't been there. They they have an advantage, you know, if they're playing on their turf. We we see later on the fact that they are surrounded by water and ice gives them a significant advantage. They have, you know, the back and forth of the day-night cycle to maybe they're not quite as strong during the day, but they have that extra oomph with their bending at at night from the moon. And despite all of that, they don't know their enemy. I think what would have been interesting is later on, we'll see Sokka place himself in places where he can manage and strategize as opposed to just be one of the warriors. Like he does both, but he places himself in a position of power. I think Sokka, you know, a season or two after this would have gone to Chief Arnok and be like, look, I have this information. Let me help you. He would have proactively been. He wouldn't have defaulted and said, okay, I think they've got this. Um, especially because I think the information he has, he would have been able to strategize with the waterbender aspect because he was mainly fighting with the like a, a special squadron of non-benders to infiltrate the Fire Nation. I think if he had been able to strategize with Arnuk as a whole, he would have been able to share that Hey, those tanks, they use water in the middle to balance themselves out. 
because you don't see when the waterbenders are fighting the, t- the mechanized tanks again, you don't see them use the waterbender, the water inside it. Yeah. It's an, a piece of information they don't have, but that would have been really helpful to them. I remember the first time I watched this that I distinctly remember this is when I started coming around on Sokka a little bit. I'm going to head like just a little bit because I remember introducing Han at this point highlights so well how far Sokka has come because Sokka used to be Han. Yes. And now he's not. And I think I think from a narrative perspective, it's a really good move because like like you said, we don't have that physical increase in in you know watching Sokka level up. It is purely decision making and personal growth and character growth. And I think introducing a character who is what this character used to be but is no longer is just such a clever way to highlight the change that Sokka has gone through. I also think Han is what Sokka would have been had the, you know, trauma not happened. Had the Fire Nation not decimated his village, had he not been the sole protector of his sister, the last waterbender in the Southern Water Tribe, had he not felt those sense of, had he not felt that sense of duty to both Katara and the Avatar, I don't think Han would have been a great, great part of Team Avatar, a great contender to that. Probably Uh, not. Probably not. Can't think outside the box. Um, it can't, doesn't listen. I think that's the the biggest difference for me between Sokka and Han is that Sokka listens and absorbs what others are telling him, you know? Um, and then he's able to make his decision. He values the information around him. He's willing to seek wisdom from many places. Yes. In order to inform his decision making. Whereas Han comes in with preconceived notions and makes his decisions based on there and will not listen to outside voices. Like when Sokka's like, that's not gonna work. And it's Zhao, not Chow. Like, stop saying it wrong. (laughs) Like, you're gonna get yourself caught. Like, I just. And I think the thing. For me, so I'm going to bring up a point that my husband brought up, which is like, he's like, seems like he's trying to get Sokka kicked off this 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 mission. And I don't necessarily think that he was trying to do that specifically because after Sokka is kicked off the mission, he says, got to go get this Admiral Chow. And if he actually like if he cared enough, he would have said it right like if he thought that you know ha i've done my i've done my tactical thing and now i can take all the information that he's given me and succeed and he can be a loser and i can be a winner then he would have used that information i don't i don't think that han is operating on that level no no i just need to bring it up because a a a, a listener (laughs) from my household had that idea no that's fair i just i think he's too condescending Honestly, mm. I think he is too narrow minded. Yeah. And he doesn't give Sokka that much credit. He's so self- he doesn't even learn Sokka's name correctly. He keeps calling him Soka. Yeah. 
which just is is a uh, is an issue and trigger for me for uh, you know that thing that didn't happen. But that's where I knew like bad, bad, bad. Is this is this one of the first times we bring up that waterbenders are at their full power at the height of the full moon? I think this is the first time we bring this up. Yeah, I think th- I think I think it might be. I just that waterbenders are werewolves. That's cool though. I like that. I think it, to me it kind of makes sense. I I really like when the show and the world has the forces of nature influence bending. Mhm. I like that connection that, you know, that idea that bending is not a superpower that you have. It's a connection with the world that you exist yeah, in. Yeah, it's very natural. Yeah. Do we ever find out like what natural force increases Earth or airbender powers? Um Earth. Not so much, but I think we I think we they're kind of at their base point. Um I mean, if it's a really windy day, I think airbenders are really going to excel because they have to put less force on the air because the air, they, all they're doing is just changing the direction of the air as opposed to as opposed to pushing it as well. So I think that would be one. And then for Earth, I think the type of Earth is really what um makes their bending stronger. Mm, yeah. I guess Boomy earth bends barefoot, so like that connection probably helps. Yeah. But I don't think there's necessarily a uh, a time of day or a season of the year kind of thing. Well, no, I think there is a se- well, maybe there's a season. I don't know. No, I'm going to take that back. Well, the seasons kind of the seasons kind of correlate to the elements. Yes. Winter, waterbender. Yeah, spring, earth. Summer, fire. Fire, fall, air. Yeah, four seasons. <laughs> four loves. Four bending. Four. <laughs> four is important. Four. This whole world is built of four. It's all four parts interconnected with each other. I really like the function that Iroh serves as Zhao's advisor. Because Zhao brought him in to, like, extract wisdom out of him so that what happened to Iroh at Ba Sing Se does not happen to him at the Northern Water Tribe. But I feel like, the way you said that, like, I feel like he brought him in for that, but he was like, all right, so I listen to everything this guy says, and then I do the opposite because he was a failure and I'm a winner. Like, right, but like he's still extracting <laughs> wisdom. And yeah, he's just doing know, it in a non-traditional way. Yeah, just like it's like I hear you. Valid point. I'm gonna do the opposite. Thank you for voicing your opinion. <laughs> Despite the fact that he's doing that, Iroh knows it. Yeah, because not only does Iroh's advice demonstrate his knowledge of the Northern Water Tribe in a way that. I don't think Zhao necessarily understands in the same way. He def- Zhao has an understanding of the Northern Water Tribe. That is not arguable. We can we can talk more about that journey, but I feel like he has a very 
academic and tactical understanding of the Northern Water Tribe, Iroh understands the wisdom of the Northern Water Tribe. He has a philosophic understanding. Mm. Almost like he knows members of the Southern Water Tribe. Almost. Almost like he's got friends. Not only does he have that understanding, he understands what makes Zhao tick. Mm. So he can, much more than Zhao, I think, at this point, work both sides of the battle from his one position as Zhao's advisor. I think especially his role as the advisor to Zhao is just, because he's Zuko's a stowaway on the ship, it is keep him busy, keep him distracted, and buy time for Zuko. I just gotta buy Zuko time, and we can move this along. Yeah. I love this scene between Iroh and Zuko. It's so sweet. And he's like, ever since I lost my son. And like, I think this is kind of one of the first mentions of losing Luten. I think so. And Zuko knows what's coming. And he's just like, no, don't say it. Don't say it. Because don't say it because then it makes it real. And then I, you know, I feel like. he feels it too. It's been an unspoken thing between the two of them. And Iroh's like, no, I'm going to put words to it. It's important for Iroh to put words to it at this point. He's so proud of him and he doesn't want to lose him too. Do you think that Iroh puts it in words for his own benefit or for Zuko's? I think for Zuko's. I think he wants to let Zuko know. Like, I think he saw a moment, he saw a window opening to say, you have a father figure. You have someone. You are not alone. You, this is not your journey alone, and your whole worth isn't wrapped up in the avatar. You have worth to me right now as you are. And I know it's important to you to go get the avatar for yourself, but please know that it shouldn't be at the risk of losing you because, again, you have worth. Because I think. If he weren't to say how much Zuko meant to him beforehand, I think Zuko would take even more risks than he's going to take. Like, I think he does not see his life as important. His life is finding the Avatar, and he will die in the process of doing that if need be. But hearing Iroh say it out loud, he would feel far too guilty taking himself away from Iroh permanently in the process of finding the Avatar. Like, before Iroh says this, he has no tether to hold him back from doing everything it takes, including losing his own life to get the Avatar. Now he has something to hold him back. Now he has a voice in the back of his mind. Now it's real. Not that it wasn't real before, but now that Iroh has said it, there's that, there's that, you can't do it. You can't do it. You can't You can't die. You're not allowed to. You're just straight up not allowed to because you would break Iroh's heart again. Yeah, I think at this point, Iroh is living every moment of his life for and in support of his son, Zuko. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. He's like, remember your breath of fire. It could save your life. And I'm like, da, 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 there we go. <laughs> <laughs> I really... I like the opening joke that he makes as well. He sees Zuko with the net working on the little rowboat, and he's like, if you're going to catch an octopus, remember you need a tightly woven net, because otherwise it will slip through any hole you leave. And that is great advice for catching an octopus, but 
that's also the best advice you could give to someone about to go try and capture Aang. Yes. It just, it works. It works so well. Until until you said that, I hadn't really put those two together. Um, Aang is the octopus? (laughs) Yeah, he is really, he's he's slippery like that. You give him any little bit of space and he'll get his way out. Um, Yeah, it's really, I like that. Makes me want to watch the scene over again. Put one on the board for me. (laughs) (laughs) And... Before we move on away from this scene, I also just want to highlight that the entire time we are all very emotional, not only because of the context of the scene, but because the Sungi horn is playing the Blue Spirit <laughs> theme this whole time. Oh, my God. Zuko's striking out on his own. He's being, Yeah. And I think that really, I think the Sungi horn theme plays per, not just in moments where he's striking out on his own, but where... He is doing something on some level, right? We finally get the lore drop about the moon and the spirit of the moon and the spirit of the ocean and the spiritual well-being of the Northern Water Tribe. I love these lore drops. <laughs> it's really cool. And we get to we get introduced to the most spiritual place in the North Pole in the entire North Pole. Uh, this lovely little garden with the koi pond. And grass. And grass. And it's warm. And they take off their coats. Like, it's that's how warm it is. Like, you see them take off their coats. Yeah. Yeah. I really, like, for me, this is when the episode kind of starts. Because I feel like the things that happen in this little garden sanctuary are, like, that's the meat and potatoes of this episode for me. Interesting. It's not for me, but. It's, you know, when I look back on the Siege of the North, this is what I'm thinking about everything that happens in this in this sanctuary space. I like that because you and I think of things so differently and mine is kind of the opposite. So it's really cool that you that that's your perspective. What's your touchstone for this episode? Um my touchstone is very much the uh battle that say so my touchstone is Sokka. I'm going to be honest. And uh, the actual, like, physical battle of what's going on and the soot and the invasion part. The siege. The siege itself, as opposed to the uh, spiritual aspects of this world. And I think uh, what's so great about this episode for you and me is that those two things collide. Oh, yeah, they do. Those two things collide. And it's really cool. I do really love, like, getting back to more of the spiritual aspects, that their their whole spiritual backbone is based on a philosophy of balance. I mean, they they call it what it is right there. It's like yin and yang. Push and pull, yin and yang. Yeah. And the spirits are so cool. The little, the fish swimming in the pond. <laughs> and We don't uh, even learn that those are the spirits yet. We don't learn that until chapter 20. Yeah, but I mean, we yeah. know talking yeah, we about know it now, talking like, about spirits. It. Yeah, but, but they're just, 
I know we didn't know, like they didn't tell us, but I remember thinking on my first watch, like there's something up with those fish. They're just spinning in a circle. They're perfect reflections of each other. There's, you know, the symbolism is there even before they tell you. I will admit I had no idea that those were the spirits. Um, You were also what, 10? Yes, I was 10. But I mean, looking back now, you know, I see Aang is drawn to them and that his eye is drawn to them and he sees the the yin and yang sign in them. And I saw that too at the time, but I think especially we didn't know that that spirits could become physical beings and a part of the real world become part of the physical world and not just like like Hebei who turned into, you know, the monster, but it was still very clearly a spirit monster and not a actual being. Uh, so this is the first time that we're really seeing that. So I had like no concept. I, you know, again, I was around 10 years old and just no idea that that was coming. But I thought it was a really cool element, especially I was like, okay, it makes sense. They're in a garden and it's warm and it shows it's, it's a, I could see the water tribe having these fish as a symbol of the push and pull. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, It it felt very much like uh, an altar in a way. Yeah. An altar, a place where you would uh, give offerings and stuff like that because it reflects the moon on the, on the pond, but also on, on the water. The water is also probably seawater, so it's probably also part of the ocean and everything. So it's really cool. Yeah. So I have a question for you. Yeah. About like world building water tribe stuff. We have, and this is probably a good time to talk about it. We have two different like symbols for the water tribe. And is there, do they have like distinct meaning? I kept noticing that, you know, Katara's necklace with the three waves on it is almost a design element in a lot of water tribe stuff. But then we have this other symbol that it's the one on the wall that we see at the the start of the fighting. And then I think it's also in like their great hall room. Yeah. Kind of above everything. And it looks like the moon with the ocean in the crit, like in the cutout of the moon. I think it's also on the gate in the spiritual, uh, the spiritual place. I think so. I know, you know, the other, societies that we see have their own symbols and stuff but i think this is the only one that has two is there am i looking for something where there isn't is i think is there one more is to northern it? water tribe and one is southern water tribe they're two very distinct different cultural uh like they have their different cultures they have their different aspects and they are on opposite sides of the world as much as they are both water tribe there is a very big difference between the North and the South, and this is just one of them. But if that's the case, then wouldn't Katara's necklace be the Northern Water Tribe symbol? I don't know what Paku was doing when he made that necklace. <laughs> I don't know. It seems like at the time, the North and South were also in a lot more communication in a way, too, that you could just travel from one to the other. And maybe that's just a detail that wasn't thought about. Yeah, but I think you also want to make it distinct to the Southern Water Tribe in a way. We don't really see any other symbols of the Southern Water Tribe. So I think more of that necklace that Paku designs 
becomes a symbol of the Southern Water Tribe because Katara is the last one standing from that part of her culture. Mm. If that makes sense. No, that makes sense. But now I'm just wondering, like, where did that symbol originate from for Paku to put it on the necklace for it to become like, I don't know. That's yeah. Yeah. But Listeners, I- if any of you know more about like the symbolism of, of and the meaning of these two symbols for the water tribe, please let me know. I'm very confused and I very much want to know. <laughs> I'm very fascinated by this. I'll be honest. I don't know enough yet to to speak on that. Sorry. No worries. One yeah. day you'll know. One day I will. Tell me. <laughs> I will. <laughs> the first one I'll call. Sokka does end up in and around the sanctuary. Yes. Because he gets kicked off of that mission so he gets fast. Kicked off that mission. <laughs> but Arnuk reassigns him. Yes. He sends him, Arnuk sends Sokka to protect Yue and defend yes. her. Yes. I think that this is evidence that Arnuk knows about the budding romance. Mm. Mm. Because if I'm concerned for the well-being of my daughter, you bet that I am asking the guy who has a crush on her to defend her. Because he is probably going to defend her a little bit better than anybody else. Yeah. Than uh, even her fiance. Yeah. Because probably. her fiance is more doing it for the political power and everything like that. To which a point I want to bring up now. Uh, I know it's a little soon, but Yue's dad admits that he knew Yue would return to the moon sometime. That her life was doomed. He knows it. Yeah. I think this is part of why she had an arranged marriage to someone who uh, didn't necessarily care for her. Because if they care for her so much and he knows that person's going to be taken away at any time, that person's going to be a broken person when she is. Oh, so you think he's trying to save someone from the pain that he... That no. he's going Ooh. to experience himself. Oh, that makes it so much worse. Yes, yes. Oh. He didn't. He didn't ever plan for Sokka. He didn't. Ha- he, Sokka was a was a not in the plan. And so even seeing Sokka care about him, he's like, "All right, let's give him some more time with her." Oh, let's give him some Ow. time, but make sure. But that like, hurts. so give him some time, but make sure that you know there's an end. The end. The end is. The end is Han. In in his mind at first, but there is an end. There is, there was always an end. Anyways, I just that really I, when uh, when Chief Arnuk admits at the end that he always knew that Ua was not one for this world for long. It just pissed me off because <laughs> I was like, oh no, like he didn't plan for her to get married in the end like he didn't like he every day she was on earth was a gift but uh Sokka being assigned to protect her just mm, 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 hits me yeah hit me too and i i want to i want to just put it out there uh yes i am a Sokka suki shipper but <laughs> i love Sokka and Yue as well i think the people that are matched with Sokka are matched for a reason and I think they um, 
they complement different aspects of his personality really well. And I appreciate that. You see a, you see them bring out such a kindness and uh, heart in him. And they bring it out in different ways. Yue is a bit softer and Suki's a bit harsher, but they both complement him really well. So as much as I'm like, oh, Sokka and Yue, it's not me being, you know, against his future relationships. I just really appreciate the relationship that he got to have here. And I think you can do that. Um, yeah. I, I am very much of the belief that Sokka needed to have his time with Yue before he had any time with Suki. Yes. Yes. The, I agree. The relationships that we have with people change us. Mm-hmm. And Sokka, before he met Yue, was not a Sokka that could be with Suki. There is a moment later on, I'll talk about this like a season or two from now, in which there is very much a parallel between a conversation Sokka and Yue have that Sokka and Suki have. And uh, it's uh, beautiful. So Point that out when we get there. I will. I will. Because I can't think of it right now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's nice. But yeah, everything everything happens for a reason and this was uh destined to happen. Destiny to say it. Do you want to talk about the battle at the end of this part, which is the battle in the middle? Battle at the end at the end ish. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the- battle at the end that's in the middle i don't know do you want to talk about this fight yeah let's talk about this fight (sighs) katara and zuko throw down oh yeah (laughs) just as she's like he's my friend i'm perfectly capable of protecting him all right here we go rematch of the century (laughs) (laughs) i love like i i gotta find i want to watch a video that is just each of Katara and Zuko's battles so I can see the level up on both sides, like all the way through. That would be an interesting compilation. I'm sure someone has done it. I need to find it. If anybody has one, send it to me because I need it in my life. Yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't mind seeing that as well. <laughs> this one is intense though. Yes. Yes. Um I just, he decides to take on a waterbender at the full moon. This is another in the decision-making skills from Zuko. Mm, not so great. <laughs> okay, but Iroh gave the advice about the full moon to Zhao, mm. not to Zuko. That's true. That's true. Zuko didn't know. Yeah, he learned real quick. <laughs> yeah, he did. He got put into some ice to learn. Did... Did you catch what I caught when Katara puts him into ice? What? She puts him into, like, this ice prison, but when he emerges, it looked to me like Aang coming out of the iceberg. Because it was just, like, this perfect sphere of light around him, and he just explodes out of it. Yeah, because she swirls it around him, too. 
Yeah. Well, it's that, that ice prison move that Paku used on her last week that she used in the sparring match at the start of this week's episode. Like, that is, that's like the power move. And he just melts and blasts his way right out of it in a way that is like this huge visual parallel to the opening of the show. Ooh, I like that. And he's the one who who gets himself out of it as opposed to Katara releasing him. Well, Katara put him in it. Yeah, well, Katara put him in it. Instead of releasing him. Yeah. I gotta say, when Daybreak hit during this battle, I was more concerned about Katara than the entire rest of the Water Tribe. <laughs> like, I was more concerned about, like, oh, girl, what you gonna do? As opposed to, like, there is a whole Navy attacking this city. Well, to be <laughs> fair, you have spent a lot more time with Katara than yeah. the rest of the Water Tribe. Yeah, and also, I think the other thing is, I'm like... <sighs> With what the Water Tribe has shown about their knowledge of all this, I'm like, I don't have as much confidence in them. But this girl, this girl's been working her butt off. I think she's got a shot at this. Yeah, yeah. And Zuko Zuko gets that really badass line where he's like, you rise with the moon, I rise with the sun. Mm, Yeah, that is. And the the camera getting him and the sun in the shot, it just looks so cool. I will say... If uh, he says that, then he definitely knows that that, that uh, waterbenders take their power from the moon. Okay, fair. If he says that, he definitely knows it. He just didn't care. He just was so determined that he's like, I just got to wait this out. It's a few hours, I guess, until daybreak. <laughs> or he was so angry, he just forgot. Yeah. Yeah, it could be anything. Could be he anything could be with Zuko. He could. Yeah, we've got a lot of evidence towards that. <laughs> That's a whole uh your con- like like we said context matters of who you're with if you're really smart or you're really dumb and uh Zuko alone pretty dumb. Also Zuko rushing into battle pretty dumb. Pretty dumb. Zuko feeling like he has the upper hand in battle not so dumb. Takes it a little smarter. Yeah. Yeah. He ups it. He stores his brain in his fire bending. <laughs> so he needed to wait for the sun-, sun to come up for his brain to turn back on. I think the ending of this episode with the Fire Nation Navy making their play into the Water Tribe, the functional points of the ships was really cool to me. Not just the fact that it's a dramatic point to the ship, but that these points can burst through the ice walls and then lower themselves as a drawbridge of sorts. Did you notice that? Yeah, I noticed this back in the first episode when it happened. Okay. Well, well no, <laughs> I, I don't know. I just, it's really cool. It's okay. It's been a really long time it's since we've seen it. It's been a long time. It's been like, we watched that, what, six months ago? Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, we recorded that back in July. <laughs> what year is it? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. It's still 2020. It's Who March, knows? right? <laughs> yeah, March <sure>. 2020. <laughs> But no, yeah, Zuko's ship does that when they when they enter the Southern Water Tribe. I'm sorry to like completely take the wind out of your sails there, or I guess take the coal out of your engine. I don't know. But all right, so you know what? Let's. That was a two parter episode, and they <laughs> they they had that moment, and then they did it again at the end of the season. But this time, it's not just that one lone ship; it's a whole bunch of them. Yeah, the impact is greater. 
It is. And it's, it is on a scale because it's on a scale that we haven't seen before. And like on both sides, yeah, the, the city wall and just the number of ships, like it totally hits different. Mm -hmm. It's almost like the city wall that Sokka made, remember, but it was smaller. So we've now seen that exact moment, but on a grander scale and with actual skill. (laughs) So not only are our characters leveling up, but our cities and our Our armies are leveling leveling up. up. Oh my God. The stakes just keep on growing, but the yep. song remains the same. Yep. And speaking of that, Zuko just decides to grab Aang and walk out onto a frozen tundra by himself. What was your plan, buddy? I mean, where his, is he going? His plan was to capture the Avatar, and he did it. That's it. <laughs> He's just like, he did it. He's like, done, did it. What do I do now? It's like when a dog catches their tail finally and they're like, all right, I got it. What do I do? <laughs> so wait, this is the first time he's captured the Avatar since the premiere. Is it? I think Blue so. Spirit? Zhao captured him in Blue Spirit. No, he, he gets him back. <laughs> well, yeah, he, he gets yeah, him. He, he gets brings him, him. He doesn't capture him, though. Yeah. Yeah. What's his plan? So not only are we calling back with the ships and the siege and, you know, but bigger. We have Zuko capturing Aang again, but smaller, more personal. Yeah, it is more personal. He's he doesn't have anything behind him. He doesn't have soldiers. He doesn't have a ship. He's just got this like one really good rope and that's it. Yeah, but it does feel even though he has less that like the stakes are higher this time. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, you're going to die, buddy. Like, where are you going? Because he d- <laughs> He had up until this moment, but there is no exit plan. Yeah, he's just wandering the tundra. Yeah, he's like, I'll find my way out somehow. There was no meetup point with Iroh. There was no, like, there's no exit plan. What's the exit strategy? Do you have your exit, buddy? He does say to Iroh, I'll see you after I capture the Avatar. I mean, that's pretty vague, though. But where, when, like, where, what? How? How? Like, is he just going to go and hide out in the tundra until the fighting is done? And then, or, or, or is he going to walk to the other side of the globe and sail south and be in the Fire Nation? Because is this, is this world a donut world? Is this world oh a sphere? Or, I was going to I was going to say, or he's expecting, or Iroh is supposed to get his own ship. Once Zhao is out, like, is out, he gets his own ship or, and, uh... Picks him up in the endless frozen wasteland. I think he's got to get to. He's got to get to some kind of shore. I think. I, I don't think he's looked at it. Clearly, he hasn't been paying attention to enough maps <laughs> <laughs> to find where he's necessarily going. Well, you know, he's not the technical and navigational genius that Ang is. You were not ready for that. It's not. I was like, what song am I singing? I'm very confused. The same song you sing every week. I, I don't consider it a song. I consider it a jingle. Okay, but what do you, like, jangle the jingle? What do you want me to say? There's nothing pithy for that. Do the thing. <laughs> no, that's at the end. All right. Cute animals. All right. If we're combining, we are combining our cute animal alert. This week for chapters 19 and 20. I like how you keep saying we're combining it because like 
it's very clear that in your mind these are two episodes. Yes. But we're just gonna put it out as one episode. I so know. like there's nothing to combine. It's just No, no, more. no. For me, I'm like, well, there's chapter one and chapter in chapter two. And if people are watching, like doing their rewatch and everything like that, they might like I don't know. I went piece by piece. So I'm just combining all the animals we saw in part one and part two is what I'm this trying to say. This is our bridge between the parts. Yes. Yes. This is this is the bridge between worlds. So let's see. Uh, we've got some Momo and Appa moments that I will discuss. But uh, we have from chapter 19, the turtle seals that Zuko sees and says, I can I have as much breath stamina as a turtle <laughs> seal. I like the turtle seals. Um, they're cute. I like the noises that they make, like that they make a lot of noise, like normal seals. And I like their like sassy reaction of like when Zuko's like, shut up. And like they (laughs) stop for a second and they look at him and then they're like, (laughs) (laughs) Like, they're done with it. Um, we also have the koi in the, uh, spiritual place in the, in the meditation area. Uh, that we learn are Twee and La. Uh, we have we have the Komodo rhinos, and they are tricked out. They've got fully armored. Fully armored. They've got these little projectile things on the side of them and everything. Um, really cool that we're starting to see like what this mechanized cavalry becomes. It's like this is the battle loadout. Not the scout loadout. Yeah, yeah. Um, some animals we sp- see in the spirit world. We see a baboon, uh, the baboon spirit. And did you recognize the voice on the baboon? I did not. It's Mark Hamill. Is it really? Yeah, it's Mark Hamill. <laughs> I know Mark Hamill is in the episode later. Yeah, no, yeah, but uh, it's Mark Hamill. <laughs> so when you say... The baboon. You mean like the one that's meditating? The one that's meditating, yes. Oh, I need to go watch this again. Put another one up. That's three. <laughs> three. <laughs> that's... All right, so I have a question about this baboon. Yeah. yeah. It's a baboon, it, but it's like it's all white, a little bit of black, big ears, friendly face, sitting on the rock, meditating, and it says Om Om. Okay. What's Om Om backwards? That... <laughs> Momo. But the thing is... Om is something that people do say when they're meditating. Yes. I think that this baboon spirit is like the spirit world analog for Momo. I don't get that at all. Mm -mm, No. They have very different personalities. Um, Reminds me more of a personality that we see later in Korra in the spirit world. They have very different personalities. He wants nothing to do with Aang being there. Um... I think he reminds me more of another character we see later on. Uh, uh, Guru Pathik is what his name is, I think. But the Guru. Um, but I don't see any connection to Momo. Sorry. Listeners, if any of you can see this, please support me. Because I feel this so strongly. I have thought this since the first time I watched this episode. What? It looks just like, it looks like a stylized version of Momo. I can't get past that. What? It's like, it's the same color. 
it's in the same like when Aang first goes into the spirit world, it's in the spot that Momo was sitting in in the human world. I feel really strongly that this is like a spirit world for analog for Momo. I don't think so. I haven't done enough research to like argue it strongly, but I I have thought this from the first time I saw this scene. Okay, okay. I think he has very similar coloring to those of the air nomads. Um and they're like colors as a nation. But I also think that the air nomads had a very strong spiritual connection. So it might make sense that they have similar fashion styles and similar coloring and everything. So we do see him again, too. We see him more than once. Uh, back to my giant <laughs> list. Uh, we see Heibai again. I like Heibai. I like Heibai. Pretty cool. I like Heibai's uh, annoyance with the baboon spirit. The little transformation. Yep. Yep. And the spirit beam. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also get a curly-tailed blue nose. How cute was that moment? So cute. <laughs> the cutest moment. He's like, not at curly- all nightmare You're just fuel. a curly-tailed blue nose turns around. No face. <laughs> just blank. Oh, my God. So spooky. So spooky. We'll talk more about the spookiness surrounding that. And then there's one more animal I want to point out is there is a giant wolf spirit that is in the background of Aang searching for Ko the Face Stealer. And this spirit returns again in the book se- the comic book series uh, for the show called The Search, where they're looking for Zuko's mom. And it is in relation to Ko, the face stealer, and Ko's mother, um, called the Mother of Faces. And yeah, so this this wolf spirit does return in that series. And so for me, it was a really cool catch to catch the, to like see this giant wolf spirit and go, I know that art style. Where do I know that art style? And pull out the book and be like, oh, yeah. I also thought it was cool to catch the wolf spirit, but for very different reasons. Why? This episode is uh, actually the last episode that Dave Filoni worked on before he went to go work on Star Wars The Clone Wars. And Dave Filoni is a big fan of wolves. He He's done a lot of public appearances where he'll wear like a t-shirt with like three wolves howling at the moon. <laughs> Um, he has, he also works on the Mandalorian and he has done a couple cameo appearances. His character's name is Wolf. Okay. And in his second Star Wars show that he did Star Wars Rebels, uh, he actually put wolves in Star Wars for the first time ever as like these spirits that are in touch with the force and have these mystical powers that no one else does. <laughs> And they were kind of the end-all be-all of that show. So he's really about the wolves. He's really about the wolves. And he put a wolf spirit in this episode. Yeah, so I thought it was a really good touch, especially when... I thought it was a really good touch, especially when they are moving into the realm of Ko the Face Stealer and building a deeper lore for that spirit. I will not consider Ko the Face Stealer as a animal for this because i don't consider that spirit an animal do you agree with me on that i agree with you on that okay thank you 
was like, I cannot have that battle today. <laughs> so, it is a pretty long list. Did I get everybody? Turtle seals. You got everybody. Koi. Yeah, the, the wolf spirit Komodo was the rhinos. Hey, bye. Curly tailed blue nose. Giant wolf spirit. Uh, I want to talk about Momo for a second. Okay. Because Momo is left alone to protect Aang's body. Well, not really protect Aang's body anymore. Just kind of left alone. Oh, right. Human world Momo, not spirit world Momo. There is no spirit world Momo. Sorry. <laughs> you did that on purpose. You're pushing my buttons. Let's talk about human world Momo. and I'm not going to qualify Aang. him like that. It is just Momo. I'm not qualifying. Okay. They're voiced by two different people. Anyways. So, Momo is the Zhao Slayer. My God, when Zhao thinks that he has, like, won, when he thinks he's like, ha-ha, there is no one here, I have invaded, I am champion, and then Momo just, like, (laughs) the music comes in. Like, it would have been, like, one thing if, like, just Momo attacks. But Momo's music plays as well, and it just changes the whole game for me. It was so ominous. Ominous. Zhao the Conqueror. Zhao the Invincible. (laughs) (laughs) I just... Such a great moment. I also froze that moment at various moments to take take my notes. And just the various, like, just screenshots of Momo uh, in, like, and Zhao dealing with Momo grabbing his face and like trying to fling him around is really funny. Really enjoyable. It was a very good Momo moment. Yeah. A Momo moment. Just a Mo for Momo. But, all right. Oh, we also, we, uh, I almost forgot the Buffalo Yaks are in this as well. Because we see them when Sokka is introducing, uh, introducing Appa to Princess Yue. Oh, I didn't catch that. Like, yep, the like, buffalo in the yaks. background. Yeah, they're the ones at the stables with Appa. Oh, that's why there are catch. stables. Yep. Um, I think I mentioned that in my whole like little spiel about the buffalo yaks because I love them. Um, we went on the yak journey. My yak journey. Yep. Uh, but yeah, there a lot of animals, a lot going on. Love it. Gotta love it, Colton. Who Who are you gonna give it to this week? That's what I want to know. There's just so many options. There are so many options. I think I want to give it to the turtle seals, though. I think I'm going to give it to the turtle seals. Uh, They showed Zuko the way. They uh, were very concerned about an invader in their midst, about this strange Fire Nation boy just, like, following them around. But um, I think they were very instrumental in this episode as well. And so I'm going to give it to them because without the turtle seals, Zuko straight up would have died. I think I'm going to give it to the giant wolf because I have no evidence to support the claim that Dave Filoni put that in there other than everything I know about Dave Filoni as a person. (laughs) And I'm sad that this is the last episode that he that we'll get to see that he worked on. And Momo gets the honorable mention for taking down Zhao the Conqueror. (laughs) Zhao the Invincible.
episode, Colton. Okay. This episode. Ooh. It. Ooh. This opening. Like, is it an opening? It's not really an opening because it's supposed to come right after it. Like, it's supposed to be a middle. But like, oh, wow. Dark. We are right in it. Did you notice, like, everything is desaturated in these first couple of scenes? Yeah. Yeah. There's there's a dark, the darkness of the water that the fish are swimming in due to all the soot because now the Fire Nation ships are upon them. See, I think it's interesting that you read it as like the soot is polluting the water because I didn't read it that way. I read it as just like, this is dark because the world is dark right now. It's casting a shadow. Yeah, like I, I read it, not not even a shadow, more as just like, this is a fantastic element of this world. Mm. Like I read it purely metaphorically. And I read it as this invading force is polluting the natural and spiritual worlds. Yeah. Yeah. yeah <laughs> that's, oof. Yeah. <laughs> it's like to have the soot fall down into and like darken, like, it pollute the very water that the spirits are just trying to swim in, like, because we're starting to see the world become more mechanized and move away from the spiritual. So how will the spiritual survive if this is taking over? Yeah. This is the ultimate battle between tech and spirit. So we have that whole, like, like you said, the, the conflicts between industry and, and like technology and, and nature and spirituality and i think right after we see the the fish in the or the pond uh all dark from the soot we do get a the episode does give us a moment of nature pushing back i think because we cross cut over to zuko and ang in the frozen tundra and there's like it's not an earthquake but like the ice starts to break apart and split a little bit and shift and Suddenly, Zuko is running for both of their lives, and he falls down and winds up discovering this little cave. And I don't know about you, but like that immediately set off my classic literature, the King of Scotland is dead, so there's a thunderstorm. Like, <laughs> this is not a, a random the world is this starting is like, to The world is starting to shift out of balance. It knows what's coming. And it's pushing Zuko and Aang in a direction that will help return itself to balance, I think. Mm, mm, sounds like some destiny stuff. I don't know. I, sounds like I'm some just, fate. <laughs> I think the spirit of the North Pole, that at this time of year, I really want it. Like Santa Claus <laughs> pushed them into the cave. Hot take. <laughs> <laughs> He saw Aang while he was sleeping. He knew that Zuko was awake. <laughs> I think uh, I think it's really interesting to think of those outside forces as uh, as nature responding to what's what's to come, and to have the world play its own part in the story. I think also what's really interesting is to show the contrast of like these are very harsh conditions up here. The people who live in the Northern Water Tribe, they've built their own sanctuary and haven. But otherwise, it is a harsh wasteland if you are not familiar with the area. If you are not familiar with it, you can very easily die up here. And that, you know, the Northern Water Tribe is very tough, but they're in their element. 
And this very much shows Zuko is not in his element at all. Not at all. He is just trying to head down and push through. And I think I think it's a good introduction because I think that this half of the episode really hones in on that, like you said, that conflict between technology and and nature. And I think that between this harsh frozen tundra, between some of the dangers that we see in the spirit world, we see that in, in this world, in this universe, nature is a force to be reckoned with. Mm-hmm, it mm-hmm. is powerful and strong and, and if you dangerous. mess with it, it's gonna mess you up. Colton, here we go. Here is the spirit world that you know and love, okay? That you and I had this big, huge argument about that I was like, even in even in the editing, like walking away from the thing, I'm like, are Colton and I even going to complete this? Because we had <laughs> such a big battle about what the spirit world is and means. And we ended we thought up about that in the episode, oh, in the edit, in the edit, we fought <laughs> in talking about the edit. We fought in our about own it the conversations week. with ourselves after like, and I'm like, what is he talking about in our, in our own individual recaps? And then I think like a few episodes later, we realized it was all over like a misunderstanding between the two of each. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So this is what you see when you hear an introduction to the spirit world. This is us going to yes. the spirit world. Yes. Okay. <laughs> we haven't been here yet. It is new. You're talking about the location. I think it's really cool. Did you uh, recognize the area? Did it look familiar to you at all? When he first lands there, he's in like a hyper stylized version of the sanctuary. Uh, Did you look around and uh, see anything else that might look familiar? Did I miss something? It's the swamp. Huh. It's the swamp that we see in book two. Well, now I have two episodes that I need to go watch. What is that, four? No? <laughs> I think we're at four. Yeah, but it, it very much is stylized to look like the swamp and the interconnection of the um, of the roots and the water. So I have a confession to make. What? I was going to save this until we got to the swamp, but I'll tell you now. What? When I first watched this show, I fell asleep halfway through the swamp, and I never went back <gasps> and watched the bit that I slept through. Oh. So I have like a small hole. So, uh, oh, okay. Wait, we'll then... fill that in when we get there. Okay. But, yeah, yeah, we will fill that hole. All right, so we're in the spirit world. <laughs> we are in the spirit world, and Aang has a little spirit interaction with his past self. Aang gets to talk to Roku. Yeah. I'm sorry. When he looks down into that little like pond and sees his reflection, but it's Roku. Mm-hmm. I just. That's the Lion King to me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is I just, see that. Just straight up the Lion King. <laughs> I see that. I see that. It's all I could think. <laughs> I love that. And so he has to find the spirits, Twi and La, the ocean and moon spirit. I like it, earlier in the, uh, what's it? I think it's in chapter 19 where he's like, all right, uh, so fighting them is not going to work. 
What if we just have the spirits do a crazy spirit attack? <laughs> and yeah, about like, that. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, talk about hitting the nail on the head. Yeah. Um, you want to talk like about a mad like, genius? Oh, he is. He is. <laughs> do you want to talk about all the spirit world stuff, and then we'll like talk about other stuff outside of like we'll have a spirit world section? Yeah, I'm good with that. That's kind of how cool. it's. That's kind of how I took my notes because I really liked keeping that world together. Yeah, yeah. Let's do that. Let's Does just that make sense? go with that because okay. I feel like I really want to talk about Co right now. That we're like I know I said let's do things more chronologically, but like I want to talk about Co now that we're let's, talking about spirits. Let's get into it about Co the face stealer, the thing that terrifies me in the night, the thing that I would absolutely lose my face in like two seconds because I cannot control my face. Okay, so. I have a thing that I noticed mm-hmm. with Ko, the face stealer, that I cannot unsee, and I just need to, like, get it off my chest, so I'm gonna send you a picture of Ko before, and I'll put it in the show notes, but I just want you to, like, you know, it's gonna pop up on your screen, so you've been warned. Okay. But, like, so there is Ko as we see them in the episode. The design of this first face is, like, my... Co- because Ko has so many faces, this is the face that I think of when I think of Ko, because it's the first one that we see. Yeah. It seems like Ko's true face in a way. Yeah. Yeah. This face, to me, looks very familiar. Okay. This face, to me, looks rather like this face. Very similar overall Ooh. design. What's that? That is concept art for a potential look for Darth Maul. Oh. Before they had the design figured out. That concept art was recycled as as many different instances of concept art are into basically Darth Maul's mother. Oh. Her name is Mother Talzin. She is the head of a group of witches that use the force for their own power. That is what she looks like. Oh, okay. And when she speaks, she has a voice that sounds very similar to the first voice that we hear Ko speak with Mm. that has this modulated, deep, resonant, you know, sounds quasi-demonic voice that mirrors everything that she says underneath her own voice as she speaks. And it is so Ko, I cannot even. (laughs) That's a really cool connection. I never would have made that because I don't I don't live in that realm. But uh, I really like that. And I see it. I definitely see it. I'll put all of this in the show notes. But yeah, if you know, for the handful of listeners that we have that are also Star Wars nerds, like it's Mother Talzin. Co <laughs> and Mother Talzin have like the same design, except one has centipede body but even talison <laughs> has like the tendrils of her of her cloak mm-hmm. that are centipede-esque yeah co the face stealer there is a lot of deeper lore and what i really love is how co is kind of introduced as someone who has deeper lore and we don't get much of that um like the fact that they're named Co the face stealer, you're like, all right, there's something going on there. Uh, and that ain't the thing is you cannot make a facial expression or else it will steal your face. Um, it's very much the thing of nightmares for children. 
And this Ko is a very old spirit, like one of the oldest spirits uh, in the realm and has seen many avatars. And Ko points that out, that uh, they've had interaction with more than one avatar, including taking the face of the woman he loves. Uh, the avatar in question was Avatar Kurik. Uh, he was a water tribe and the woman that he was supposed to marry had her face stolen by Ko. And Kurik died <laughs> young. Uh, made, made some impulsive decisions after that because he was a broken man losing the woman that he loved. Um, and there is a lot more lore behind Ko in the, like, it was like they had this great concept for this creepy spirit villain but they just didn't have the time to put in the back like they had this idea and this lore they just didn't have the time to delve into all of it they could like sprinkle little things here and there and so ko is very important in the series the search which is about zuko's search for his mother um and ko is also mentioned in the kiyoshi novels as well and uh ko's the spirit's mother is called the mother of faces uh, and designs faith, gives faces to all creatures. So you have this symbol of light and love and creation. And then re the relation, the son, um, Ko, who takes and is that demonic, malevolent spirit, which is a really cool yin yang to it so um and you even see a so the mother faces is this spirit that's very that's shaped more like a tree and even on your way to see cove there is this tree that looks very much like that spirit so it's a really cool concept i think it's almost a good thing that we don't get too much lore right away oh yeah around co because that whole concept of there's nothing more terrifying than your own imagination mm, yes like if i if they told us like okay this is co this is this is their motivation. This is their purpose. This is what they're after. Like, okay, now it's not as terrifying. Mm -hmm. They're really, and the thing is about Ko is that there really is no like motivation. <laughs> they're just, just, he's going to take your face. He's, he's going to take your face. And that there is this kind of, Aang walks into it, not even understanding that there's a battle between Ko and him, that, that the avatar has faced Ko more than once. Um, and so he's surprised, but uh, we, I think we see Ko again later. I don't think this is the last time we see Ko. I think we see Ko more. Also, when Aang walks in, Ko recognizes Aang mm -hmm. as the avatar. Like, Ko yeah. is holding all the cards in this interaction mm -hmm. and knows it. Yes. He's trying to throw him off his game. Yeah. And I am, I've got to say... I was re I was really impressed with how Aang was able to keep his cool throughout. And I got to give it up to the monks for that one because I thought, you know, childish, fun, goofy Aang would have a little more trouble with that control, but he didn't. Like I was actually surprised. Like it took away from my fear in a way. I think I think that was a really cool element to add because I'm so terrified of this creature in front of me that I think if I had added 
even more of like, oh my God, Aang could slip up at any moment. It would have been too much fear, but to show Aang be pretty level-headed throughout, like he only loses it like one moment and then he turns it right back on. It's like, thank you very much. It uh, almost like calmed my nerves as a child. <laughs> like, like when I was a kid watching it of like, he can handle this. He can handle anything. And his uh, natural, his natural ability at dealing with spirits is a lot stronger than other aspects of being the avatar. I do think that a part of it is what you were saying before with, with Zuko and Osaka, the, the context of who you're with. Aang is by himself on his own. His only companion halfway sort of kinda is Roku. And I think if if the rest of the gang were there, he might not be able to do this because oftentimes he does, I think, play up that goofy childish side of himself around his friends as a way of protecting them. All right. I'm going to extrapolate on that because I think that's a really good point. I think the other part is he is more emotional when he's around his friends like Katara and that gets him into trouble later when he's dealing with spirits and he's dealing with coming into the avatar state is that he's advised to cut that emotional tether because it makes him unstable to deal with spirits and the avatar state itself. So him being alone, he can, he can be that mature uh, avatar and rely on himself and be more somber and uh, sober about these things. There's one more face I want to point out about Ko the Face Stealer is that he takes the face, uh, he takes on the image of what looks like the mask of the blue spirit. Yeah. When he gets upset about the attack that's about to come on Tui and La. Like that's the moment that he takes on that face. And uh, whoo! <laughs> really cool. Really cool. I found it, it, what stuck out to me about that that scene was not only that that's when Ko takes on the face of the blue spirit, but the fact that like Ko takes on the face of the blue spirit while talking about the yin and yang in the world, in everything, in Tuyen La, in push and pull, the moon and the ocean. And But for me, it was also like there's a righteous anger about someone upsetting that balance. And Ko was not, Ko was not a heroic figure. And so taking on that face of saying, of trying to protect another spirit. Hmm. Right. But also what I'm saying is like, we have this, this conversation happening about, about balance, about two, two halves of the whole. And of all the faces to choose, you're going to choose the one face that we associate with this other character. That's like, it is right there. to talk about Zuko in the cave? Zuko in the cave. Talk about character development. Oh, the what really stuck out to me. You're when he's speaking to Aang and he goes, "You're like my sister. Everything always came easier to her." And then he goes into, "My father says my sister was born lucky. He says I was lucky to be born." Oh my God, this is it. This is the entire relationship summed up 
one easy sentence. This is childhood. This perfect line is perfect. This is his relationship with his sister and his relationship with his father. All in one. This is the family dynamic right here. Summed up. It's like, it's like this is the line that the writers wrote on like the index card for Zuko. Like, <laughs> like we're building, we're building the Fire Nation royal family. What do we want to, what do we want to do? Well, uh, his father, his father says his sister was born lucky and he was lucky to be born. Like it's some, it's some fatherly quip that just worked its way in and just like, some writer had some kind of traumatic moment in childhood that came up with this and just, I don't know. I don't know, (laughs) but this is it. And this is what I mean when I sit, when I like, when I'm looking at the adversaries and what we're kind of hinting at of what's coming with his sister is that Zuko has had to work and uh, work and push and grind for everything he's getting. And I think that's very similar to Katara, who has had to work and push and grind for everything that she had that she has going on for her. She hasn't had the support of parental figures. She hasn't had um formal te- she hasn't had she hasn't even had formal teaching until Paku. Um she is figuring this all out on her own and forging her own path. I think that's very similar to Zuko. You then have Zuko talking about Aang. And comparing him to his sister, who Zuko's rival prior to Aang was his sister. He's showing that he has always been compared to his sister by his father. So he's seeing glimmers of that in Aang. You are naturally talented. You haven't had to work. And Katara even Katara and Paku point this out to Aang too, of like, you know, she's hard work. Like it's not just natural talent, which is what. Aang has. Aang shows it when he's first learning waterbending. He can figure it out in two seconds. It's just a natural talent that he has. And Azula, uh, Zuko's sister, also has that natural talent. So what we have is, you know, the worker versus the talent. But what we're going to see is the worker versus the worker and the talent versus the talent. And that is... That is an interesting matchup to me. Yeah. Yeah. You feel better? I feel better. I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm so, I'm so excited. I'm so excited during that. I didn't want to interrupt you. I'm so excited about that dynamic and just, oh, and you know, sometimes, especially if you have an interesting relationship with your sibling like that, that if you meet someone else in real life who has similar like traits to your sibling or like, uh, or things going for them like your sibling, there's no way to not make that connection. Be like, and uh, and feel like that sibling dynamic that you can't play out to the end because you're siblings and you have to get along and stuff like that, you can finally play that out to the end with someone else. I don't know. That's just my thoughts and feelings that I have a lot of. They're good thoughts. Thank you. <laughs> What are your thoughts on that? Because <laughs> I honestly, that's not what stuck out to me in, in that scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm glad that you turned my attention to it because <laughs> I feel like I see a lot more in that scene now than I did before. But the, the, the line that stuck out to me was when Zuko says, there's always something because that's what 
we've seen so far this season. That's what, what I've seen this season. What was the context for that again? Do you- there's, like, no matter what he tries to do, there's always something in his way. There's ah, always something okay. making it a little harder. There's always something making it a little more difficult. And I get that. No matter what you do, there's some roadblock, something that you didn't see, that you didn't expect, you didn't account for, and it's gonna get in your way, and it's gonna mess things up, and it's gonna make things harder. And it takes so much energy and effort to blow through them time and time again and keep going. And it sucks. (laughs) But there's nothing else you can do. You just gotta keep pushing. Oh my god. That uh that reminds me very much of like me talking to you freshman year of college. Sorry, I'm just like <laughs> I think these aspects of this conversation really called out to us uh on personal levels. You I think you so. you saw there's always something and I saw sibling dynamic <laughs> as someone who has a younger sister. <laughs> Gee, I wonder what our own personal struggles in life are like. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I don't. But no, so I think that's I think that's really interesting. I like that. I like that that one little scene as much as it's just Zuko's he gets Aang. He doesn't have an exit strategy and everything, but I love how there's this vulnerable moment for Zuko. Like he feels comfortable enough with Aang in this unconscious avatar state to talk to him. And to open up about just how hard things have been and how hard it's going to be. And that's really interesting because it sounds like it seems like things that he hasn't said to anybody else before. You know, like it feels like he can breathe, you know, that he's had this tension in his shoulders. And this is the first time he's finally just like relaxed them and said, you know, there's always something. This is the best therapist he's ever had is an unconscious Aang. Like, it feels like some of this stuff he hasn't even said out loud to Iroh. He's like, Iroh knows it, that he doesn't need to say it out loud. But there's a, it's, it's when, you know, you're with someone and like with Iroh, Iroh knows all this stuff. So Zuko doesn't need to say it out loud and make it real. He knows it. But in this moment, Zuko is vulnerable enough and at kind of like, it seems free enough. He's away from everyone else. He's away from the pressure. The pressure for the first time is lifted because he's captured the avatar. It's, it's, it's gone. There's, you know, how's he getting out of this one? And he can breathe and acknowledge the struggles that he's dealing with. And it's interesting to see him say those things out loud and put, I find that there's a power when you finally put words to the feelings that you've been holding into, holding onto and holding in. There's a power. And we're seeing Zuko give those feelings power, but also take that power for his own and harness it. He's not letting those feelings control him. He's has a con- he's finally feels free enough to control those feelings and be comfortable to share them. So I have a question for you in light of all of that. Do you think that, and here we go with another hypothetical, uh, <laughs> do you think that Zuko would have been able to do all of that with Aang if Aang had not done it first in Blue Spirit. Ooh. Ooh. Because this scene is Zuko's reply from Blue Spirit from the end. 
This is what he couldn't at that moment say to Aang the last time they were alone together when he was the one that was tied up. Or not tied up, but yeah. Oh, I think I think he's echoing the comfort that Aang had when when Aang opened up to him. They but have do you reached... think he would have been able to do it if Aang hadn't opened up first? No, no. I, I don't know if he would have. That's that's a really good point. I think he um I think their connection that they made in the episode Blue Spirit of understanding each other, ooh, I think that's important. I think that has value for him feeling comfortable to say this out loud because he's like, if he wakes up, I don't think he'll judge me. Like, I think that's what goes through his head. If he wakes up, I think he'll understand. If he hears any of this, maybe he'll, he'll understand where I'm coming from. Good point. Oh, my God. I hadn't. Ooh, oh, oh. So I have another one I'm, I want to push on you. Okay. Seeing how far you can push this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let, you know, we're going to assume that this is Zuko's reply to Aang's similar divulgence at the end of Blue Spirit. Yeah. Do you think we would have been friends? Mm. In this moment, do you think Zuko is saying they could be friends or they can't be friends? Is this an explanation for why they can't be friends or is this... I think this is Zuko saying we never could have been friends. There's too many outside forces. I was lucky, like, I was lucky to be born. I, I never had an option. That was never an option for me and my life. So, yeah, that's what I'm going to go with. I don't know if I agree with you. Ooh, okay. I think that he doesn't necessarily know if they would have, if they can, if they could be friends. Mm -hmm. And I think he's saying, you know, I, I don't know, but here's where I'm coming from. You've explained where you're coming from. Here's where I'm coming from. I don't know mm. what that means. Mm. I think this is I think this is him acknowledging to himself and as much as he can to Aang that he's lost. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't know the way. All right. All right. All right. All right. All right. Where were you? We're back at the battle. Battle, 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 battle. Uh, yeah, we get the return of the tanks. Now with added grippies. <laughs> <laughs> the digital tanks. Oddly out of place digital tanks. But I, I like that the tanks are kind of like they're, they look different. And they're otherworldly. And they're yeah. almost unnatural in a way. They are unnatural, especially with, with this like big natural environment. Yeah. I also love the water cannons that are built into the walls. Those are cool. They're supposed to be just like outflows for some of the canal for like control flow and everything, but they're also using them as straight up cannons. It's really cool. I think that's their functional purpose. Like there's, there's, you know, for war times, but they haven't really needed them. It's just been there for a while. So super cool. And, uh, Zhao, and we see how Han's plan works, which uh, is, uh, it does not. Not great. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Bye, boy. He really Bye-bye. stands up for to. He really stands up to Admiral. What does he call him at this point? Choi? Ch- Cho? Something. Cho? Gets it wrong. It's Gets very it wrong. much wrong. 
gets thrown off the, the boat. With the pointy uniform. I don't know if you noticed, he's still wearing yep. the pointy uniform. Yep. Like, And I like how neither Iroh nor Zhao, like, even flinch or even blink flinch. or... It, not on their radar. Yeah, yeah, like, <laughs> this guy over here. Uh, it's it's like, Han's big moment. Doesn't even, doesn't even move the needle. Which, if you're thinking of foils, uh, Sokka fighting Zuko for the first time. Ooh. Sokka's big moment. Yeah. But Sokka got a hit on with the with the boomerang. He got yeah. something. He kept adapting. Got a little Sokka- more to work with than Han. Well, Sokka adapted. He did. Han did not. Han just ran off that top of the ship. Yeah, it was bad. But uh, <laughs> kind of funny. And uh, kind of love to see it. Kind of love to see it. Um, but we get more Zhao. I get more Zhao. And I'm sorry. I intend to remove the moon as a factor. I just sat there and just went, okay, you crazy. Like, we've now <laughs> moved from, like, normal villainry to supernatural villainry. Like, this is this is bonkers. Like, to me. Like, this is bonkers to me. This is bonkers to Iroh. Even Iroh's like, because I was like, all right, what what you gonna do? Like, I, I even I was like, what? You're gonna remove the moon? That makes no sense. And I was like, okay, so I'm not crazy here. Iroh also thinks this is insane. Like, I don't think he's disclosed this plan to many people. Well, he does disclose it here, and it is something. Yep. <laughs> the hidden li- the hidden underground library. Hint, hint, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Yep. Um, I knew spirits could be found and killed. I found this like, this is next level evil. Like he keeps topping himself with his evil. Like he was gonna, you know, like keep Aang captured and let him like, you know, live his life out in prison. So that way, you know, the Avatar could not go on, you know, Avatar would be removed rather than, uh, you know, killing Aang and the spirit going on to someone else. He is, he is, he wants to completely disrupt this world. He is impulsive, just like Zhang Zhang said. He cannot see the bigger picture. And I think it's, it's really important that in the context of the episode, he is framed as an unnatural force. Mm. He is counter to the flow of the world. Mm-hmm. He does not respect the spirits at all. Yeah. He doesn't respect that aspect. He holds no fear for retribution. None The spirits at all. are something to, he sees the spirits as something to be acted upon rather than them reacting. Well, his whole stance is, is might makes right. Mm-hmm. And Iroh can't believe that. Yeah. Iroh's like, Dude, you're going to disrupt the whole world. Like, that's not even just, like, just the waterbenders. You're going to mess with us. You're going to mess with everything. And he just, he can't, he can't see past his initial goal. I don't think he wants to. I think he thinks that is the ultimate goal. Yeah. That's the ultimate goal. We're going to stop that. And we're going to be in control. And we're going to, eliminating the moon eliminates the waterbenders as ever being a factor. And then it's just the earthbenders. So we'll figure out how to get all the earth, all the earth away from the earthbenders. Like, keep, you know, like, 
Um, yeah, it's just it's next level evil. I also really like this. He acknowledges that Iroh has traveled to the spirit world. Yeah, that's a that's a, a nice little like little justification drop. for why Iroh could see Aang. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, exactly. That's what I was thinking. I was thinking back to why Iroh could see Aang. He's a bit more in touch. So I think we have a couple more points in the siege that we want to like the the proper yes, the proper assault. siege before before, before the, we get into before the, the moon is no longer a factor. <laughs> before we get into the battle at the end the at, the, at end. the end of the end at the end. <laughs> Um, yeah. The battle at the battle at the end at the end. I just couldn't, during the siege, I just couldn't help but marvel at how every structure made out of ice and snow just gives the North Pole Navy, like, this tactical advantage. Like, even the spiritual place is very strategically safe in theories because it's got a small door entry uh, that you kind of have to, like, crawl through in a way. Like, it looked really small to me. And then it's got these high cliff walls that are surrounded by this frozen tundra to nowhere. Um, this is a really cool fortress. There's only one one way in. Yeah. And it is guarded by a whole lot of waterbenders. Yes. And I think it's a really cool, like thinking about it now, cool comparison that Zhao makes to Ba Sing Se of how difficult it is to to conquer and how there are so many natural elements that get in the way it was really cool is yeah so i just couldn't help but marvel at it of like you know at one point the fire nation soldiers are running across the bridge and then the bridge just collapses because it's snow and ice like they they pull it apart they just move the bridge it's they just move the them. bridge it's it's nothing to them it's something they can they can take away it's really cool yeah, I really like how we get to see Paku being really cool and really strong and really powerful. Like, we fully justify him being the waterbending master of this group. His, like, water tornado thing that he's doing to move around, like, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I feel like this, we've seen Aang do, like, a tornado. Yep. Have we seen, like, an Earth Cyclone? I just, I feel like... We haven't seen an Earth one, but... We see it with fire with Zhang Zhang, I believe, but we we start to see this. So this is something that I feel they've taken from each other, like they've taken yeah. from other elements being bended. It just it stuck out to me. I was like, oh yeah, huh? We really only see masters do the tornado move mm -hmm. with whatever their element is. I think also the tornado move is really a master thing because you have to be bending that around you and lifting you up, but also focusing on your strikes out. So you're kind of doing two things at the same time, like rubbing your stomach and patting your head or whatever. You're keeping yourself up and elevating yourself and keeping that in motion, but you're also using another part of you to strike out at those around you. Do you think they're like spinning their legs really fast inside the tornado? Just like little kicks. <laughs> little, but like really fast, like like treading uh, water. The roadrunner? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe. But it's like a little That's, treading water. I'm going to picture that every time I can't see legs inside <laughs> of a tornado <laughs> now. Yep. <laughs> yep. I'm hearing like the uh, sound effect of Mr. Krabs walking across <laughs> really fast. I um, went to Scooby Doo. Oh, okay. That's, that's a fair one, too. 
But uh, no, it's a really, it's a really cool move. So, yeah. So, the siege is on. And now, Zhao is going to remove the moon as a factor. I'm sorry, that line just... <sighs> I'm just like, you crazy. Um, Do you want but- me to get you a piece of scenery that way, just like Zhao, you can chew it as well? <laughs> <laughs> maybe he really okay when he walks into the spiritual place they do this nice framing where zhao is his face his head is blocking out the moon i did not pick up on that but so cool. i i feel like you're always telling me about times where like something in the frame like the way the frame is staged is communicating the story and I really, really love that you're so in tune with like the scene blocking. I I think from an actor perspective of like the importance of blocking and what's pulling you towards something, pulling you away, what you're in front of, what you're behind. I think that really stands out to me. And um, you know, in the power of threes and like I'm always seeing I can't help it but see like the triangles on stage every time you're like <laughs> like you know, oh, you're always in a triangle and you're moving and pushing and pulling against each other. I'm always seeing that. And so uh, you know, like I've seen with UA and Sokka and the moon, I see the fish and then the moon and Zhao right in between and blocking it out and blocking out that light to to La and Twee. So it's just, it really was really cool to me. Yeah, it's a good catch. Let's get back to, and then we uh, travel back to the gang trying to find Aang and Zuko. And I love, you know, if we know anything, it's that Zuko never gives up. They'll survive. And that I love that Sokka has more respect for Zuko here than he ever did for Han. I think Sokka is the only one, definitely at this time, maybe like across the seas. I'd have to go back and Mm -hmm. look at some of the other stuff that we've talked about. Put it in your retrospective notes. I will. He does not underestimate his adversary. Mm. He did it once and never again. He did it once at the very beginning with Zuko, yeah. and he never will again. Yeah. Because, again, that whole battle between Zuko and Sokka in the beginning, Zuko could have used firebending, and he didn't. Mm-hmm. There was a reason. And I feel Sokka has a respect for Zuko, uh, a, res- a respect as an adversary that Katara and Aang don't have. Well, Aang maybe more. Um, at least Katara, Katara is so annoyed by Zuko and everything he does. And, you know, she just wants to eliminate him. (laughs) But I think Sokka sees the, uh, determination of Zuko and the strategy and the uh, strength. And he understands that this is someone who will never stop. This is someone who's always going to be following them and to get used to it now. I think Aang has that same respect for Zuko, but I think it took Aang until Blue Spirit to learn that respect. Yes, until they were working side by side. Whereas we have not seen Sokka and Zuko side by side. Yeah, but I think Sokka 
got that respect for Zuko way earlier. Yes. If he I didn't think, have honestly, it when they first, first met. Fight, yeah. And and if he didn't have it there, like he got it there. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. Which is really cool. I, I like that I like that dynamic. And I do uh, too. Yeah. There's there was this meme I saw going around that's like, you know, Sokka and Zuko really don't talk to each other or interact as much as like Katara and Aang until like the like end of the series. And so there's kind of this gap. Zuko's only really known Sokka as that kid who threw the boomerang at him. Like, he doesn't know him. And uh, about, like, what the conversation is when Sokka's like, oh, yeah, I, I invent like I invented those. And they're like, and he's like, what? You invented the war balloon? What? Wait, wait a second. Hold up. And, like, all the things that Sokka has invented and developed and him being like, I thought you were just boomerang kid. Like I thought you were just the weird <laughs> boomerang kid who like hung around in the background with the avatar. And he's like, uh, no, I uh, did the whole plan and I took out an entire air fleet. Like, and he's like, whoa, I got to sit down. Like, I feel like Zuko's reaction would be like, I got to sit down and process this. What do you mean? <laughs> you mean like when you first started enlightening me to the ways of Shaka? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Like what? No, you're just a dummy. <laughs> and Suki, he's a comedic relief. Suki in the background goes, "You're right, Zuko. He's just dummy. Like, just <laughs> <laughs> kidding." But yeah, so uh, no. So I think that's um, it's really interesting. It's nice to see that Sokka and Zuko have no interaction with each other, but to see that respect that Sokka has is really cool. And Sokka does not underestimate him anymore. I love that Katara is the first one to see the light of Aang's spirit travel back. Is she supposed to be the only one that can see that light? I don't know. It seems like Sokka can see it eventually. Like, once she points it out. But I think it's important that she's the first one to see it. Yeah, well, they have that special connection. Like, that she's... They're connected. They're connected. That's important. And, again, Zuko trying to fight Katara again. Like... (sighs) Yeah, when will he, he learn? Absolutely curved stuff. Oh my by god! Her. Not even like, like I don't have time. No for you. chance. Tell him, boy, bye. <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> what happens here. Like yeah. she won't even entertain the thought of actually fighting him. She's just like, no. Just launch you up in a tower and drop you to the ground. Yep. She's just so done with his antics. She's like, I'm not even going to fight you right now. I'm just going to curb stomp you. Yeah. And then Aang is always saving Zuko. <laughs> right? Like, he just can't let, let the boy die. Can't let him go. Can't let him go. It's kind of sweet. I I think that's also, I mean, part of Aang's character is he can't let anybody die. He, that's, I think that's the, you know, one of, one of Aang's core beliefs and core morals is that, you know, he believes in life. And he doesn't even eat meat. Like, he very much believes that people deserve a second chance um, that, you know, know, he just believes in life. And it's just, it's not, this is not the way that Zuko should go. So, Zhao has captured... The spirits of the moon and the ocean. Put them in a bag. Put them in a bag. And this creepy red swirling over the moon. 
Oh my god. I love this. That is... This brings our color theory, like, this episode, like, just brings all that color theory together. I just kept hearing Legolas in my head (laughs) from Two Towers when he's all, like, a red sun rises, blood has been spilt this night, like... That's all yep. I can think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's and I've also I've been replaying um, Zelda: Breath of the Wild. Ah. And in that game, every I forget however many days, but I think it's like every two weeks in game, um, the the moon rises, but it's a blood moon, and so it's red, like blood red, and every enemy you've killed since the last one respawns. Yeah. This is <laughs> this is the ultimate like. All the all the colors coming together here with the red and the blues and oh my god okay yeah let's yeah. talk colors um and Zhao so I think he captures just law am I wrong like he, he captures just, just, he just law. law which is the moon and I just there's this moment where I was like is he gonna punch a fish. Because, like, he's holding his fist. He's holding his fist. And, like, in my head, like, I didn't think of, like, the firebending aspect part. For some reason, I was like, he's going to punch that fish. (laughs) That's where my brain went to. It's like, how hard are you going to punch that fish in the bag? Because I was like, that's that's technically all you really need to do. (laughs) Yeah, like, fish die pretty easily. (laughs) If you punch a fish, it's probably dead. Yeah, it died pretty easily. Like it's pretty easy. Like honestly, just hold the bag up for a bit, and it's gonna go. Like it's it's not gonna make it. Um, <laughs> but I was like a little extra to punch a fish. <laughs> like, could you imagine if you just like drop the bag on the ground and the fish is just flopping for a couple of minutes? <laughs> I mean, that that's another that is another way to kill a fish. But yeah. <laughs> punching it. Not what I would have gone to automatically. Um, but I guess frying it, he was he was gonna fire fist it, you know, like Yeah, yeah. That's... He was gonna have some fish fry. Yep. Yep. Um <laughs> but <sighs> so he kills Blah. He kills the moon spirit. Well, before he does that. Can we take a second to talk about how not only is all of Team Avatar standing against him, but Iroh joins them. Yes! Iroh stands with them, and I think this is where we find out what Iroh is fighting for, because he's not fighting for the Fire Nation. He's fighting for the natural order of things. And it makes everything fall out of balance hurting the moon in the first place like removing removing the moon from the pond turned everything red first once that once the moon is uh killed everything's gray everything's color gone like they're in that moment of peril in that moment of jeopardy it is like the moon is screaming out for help And Team Avatar hears the call, and Iroh hears the call. Yeah, and Iroh, I think Iroh gets my favorite line of the episode, where he looks at Zhao and he says, whatever you do to that spirit, I will unleash on you tenfold. Like, he means He is stone cold business. Oh my god. Yeah, he's, he's been playing this ally to Zhao. Like, even, even, 
in just listening to him. Like he's trying to advise him. He's been playing at this advisor thing. But once Zhao takes this next step, it's too far for him. Like even like even when he was talking about it, like Iroh's like, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't do that. Don't do that. And then he does it anyways. And Iroh's like, I can't even I can't even pretend. Sorry, Zuko. I can't pretend anymore. Like Zuko's whole mission is just out of his mind. This is the dragon of the West. This is so much more important than everything else, because this is putting the balance of the world in jeopardy. So I want to talk about UA for a second, owing the moon spirit. Okay. She was stillborn. There is a theory, and I don't know if you have you heard about the UA theory? I don't think so. Okay. So there is a theory, and I kind of love it. I'm going to preface with the fact that I love it so you can just like sit back and listen for a second. Um, the UA is born. The next avatar in the cycle is supposed to be a waterbender. UA is born without spirit in her. The theory is that Yue was supposed to be the next avatar. She was supposed to receive the spirit of the avatar. And when she was born, that spirit wasn't there to transfer in, and hence her being stillborn, and hence the moon spirit trying to seek balance with the world because this wasn't supposed to happen, gives her a touch of life from their own life. And if we look further down, the next avatar, Korra, is a waterbender who is a distant relative of Yue because her father is related to the chieftains of the Northern Water Tribe. Ooh, I don't know how I feel about that theory. Okay, that's fine. I'm, t- I'm saying I love this theory because it seems, it seems a lot for the moon spirit to... I know they I know her parents ask the spirits for help and everything like that, but there's something there's gotta be something else to for me to drive the spirits. So I really like this take that uh she was supposed to have the touch of the Avatar spirit and she uh and because Aang threw off the balance by getting frozen into ice for, you know, a hundred years that the moon spirit tried to correct the balance. I think what's getting in the way of me liking the theory is that we know she's 16 right now. So that means that when she was born, if Aang had not been frozen, he would have been in his 90s, which means that if she was if she was supposed to be the next avatar, that Aang's death was predetermined. I mean, there is supposed to be a cycle to these things. And kind of a pattern that, you know, I, so again, it, it, predetermined. I mean, there's also um, avatars have lived for various amounts of time. Like Korok only lived to like 35, whereas Kiyoshi lived for a long time, like well over 100 years. It's a balance to balance out that out. Oh, I'm, I'm not taking issue with Aang living to 90. I'm taking issue with the fact that like Aang, I'm taking issue with Aang's death being predetermined by the 
spirit of the Avatar and his going into the ice disrupting that. I think the his going into the ice was, uh, I mean, it was a very human decision to run from his responsibilities there. Uh, and it was an emotional one that was not factored in by, you know, say a spirit, you know, I mean, the whole point that they, that um, the gurus try to make with Aang is that he needs to kind of let go of that more human and emotional side to become the avatar that he needs to be. But his emotions keep controlling his actions. And so uh, I think that wasn't planned. I think that was not, that was, that was not in the cards at the time. Right. I just, I don't think I like the spirit of the avatar being able to divine the length of the life or the events of the life of any given avatar at any point in time. I think that's too much predetermination, too much destiny for my sensibilities. That's fine. I like destiny and I I think I've made my, my view very clear on that through the seasons. So yeah, no, that's fair. But I think, I think it's a really cool, uh, especially um, when you look at, you know, Korra's relation as the next avatar uh, to UA. Yeah, I think I think it's a it's a cool theory. I just like that's the one. It's just a theory thing that's not... getting in the way for me, like fully jumping on board with it. Yeah, no, that's I fine. like everything else about it. Cool, cool. I just wanted to introduce you to that theory because it's Thank a fan you. theory, and I I, I personally enjoy it. Um, I think. UA would have been really cool. I do really, really like that the the moon was able to offer UA a bit of life and time, but ultimately that has to go back. Yes, that's balance. I I really, really like that, as painful as it is. As painful as it is, you can't give life life without that cost, without something in return. It is borrowed time, and that is what UA's father understands, that it's borrowed time. Um, And I love that even when UA is talking about owing the moon spirit like this, it transitions like from looking at UA talking about it to the moon in red in peril. (laughs) Like, just another another UA to the moon connection. (laughs) And the nail over the head with this one. (laughs) Yeah. My fun UA theory. I like it. I think it's good. And I think it's nice to, to like, you know, add it in as a discussion point so that we're not just all somber because the episode keeps us from being all somber by showing us some fun, happy Momo. But we already talked about that because cute animal alerts in the middle. is dead. La is gone and it takes away all color from the world except for Yue's eyes. Yeah. Is that what you yeah. tried to hide from yeah, me in the show is. notes? I didn't know if you'd see it or not. I saw it. Okay, good. I saw it and I had that note too. Good, it's good, It's not good. just Yue's eyes though, it's also the fire blasts. Mm. Mm. The fire blasts in Yue's eyes are like the only bit that's left. But if we're thinking of the color theory, Yue's eyes are blue. Yes. That is yeah. the one glimmer of hope is in her eyes. Yeah. Because the fire is all like, you know, the reds and oranges. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Um, 
I, before we talk about more about UA and the moon, I just want to talk about Twee and Aang's reaction to losing the moon. They react. <laughs> they react. His sink, his Aang with the other voices and then sinking into the pool was just sick. That was, that was <sighs> next level. And the speed with which he just descended into the avatar state. And the blue taking over and going out across everywhere. And then there's just becoming this gigantic spirit monster. There is something very biblical about uh, this spirit monster taking over the city. um, And how when he comes across the fighting, the waterbenders bow down. They see this is the spirit of the ocean. This is their, their... their god this is what they revere and they drop their weapons and bow down and those who do not are smited <laughs> like that's that's just straight up what it is it is very it, it, you know i looking in the wiki it's very like passover type things you know those who you know have the blood on the door are are passed over and those who do not sorry your firstborn's gone but it's just so it show it's showing the pa- sheer power of the spirits when there is this lack of balance and and how they set the balance back it's just so cool yeah i i want to dig into this a bit do you, who who do you think is driving this i'm going to call it a symbiotic ship even <laughs> though it doesn't like, I feel like it's not full symbiosis. Like, is this Twee taking over Aang? Is this Aang surrendering himself to Twee? I think it is Aang is the lightning rod and is able to manifest and give power to the spirit. The spirit is using is using Aang to help uh, channel it's wrath. So Aang's like a conduit. Yes. Yes. He's using uh, this. He's a vessel for, I think, I mean, the avatar is the bridge between the spiritual and human world. And he is there to speak for the spirits as well as for the humans, the humans to the spirits, the spirits to the humans. That is his job is to create that balance. And so the spirit can't talk. But it wants to send a message. And so Aang says, I agree with you. Let us send that message and creates this. And I think I think it helps that Aang says earlier of like, what about a giant spirit attack? Like Aang's got that in the back of his mind already thinking like that mad genius. And I think it might the way that Aang walks onto the water and gets swallowed up by that by that uh, by the water. I think he presents this option to the spirit you know what i mean the spirit says yeah let's go buddy exactly exactly (laughs) he presents this option of like all right let's go like you have every right to be upset let's show this to the world i think um if he hadn't have walked onto the water i don't know what would have i don't think this would have happened i don't think the ocean spirit would have risen up and done it itself i think 
Aang was the proper channel, if that makes sense. It makes sense. Yeah. Did you notice that when Aang is at the center of this giant spirit attack, he looks like he's back in the iceberg again? Yes. Yep. I think that's twice this episode we've like referenced the visual element of Aang in the iceberg. I also think I think that spirit remembers. Like it's the ocean. That's where he was. I think this spirit remembers. This spirit was a part of keeping him safe. I think I think they both owe each other that. That's I was I wanted to ask you that because I didn't put it in the the notes document, but I did have the thought in that moment when I was taking that note of like this looks like the iceberg. Do you think that this this spirit helped Aang to keep himself, you know, like do you think maybe this spirit nudged Aang into the avatar state so that he could protect himself for the time that he was Oh yeah. 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 Okay. I, I did too. I just, I wasn't sure. Yeah, I think, and I think seeing that pod within the giant, um, basically a Jaeger. <laughs> that's what I thought. That's what I kept thinking. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's a Jaeger. <laughs> um, yeah, a giant fish monster. Yeah. But uh, seeing that pod in there, yeah, I very much think that the ocean spirit remembers. The ocean spirit knows. I mean... It, I feel like it should know. Water has memory. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to transition this into, we're now going to see Zuko going after Zhao. And in this moment where Zhao says to Zuko, you're the blue spirit and calls him out on it, there is, I'm going to talk about framing again. There is Zuko on the left, Zhao on the right. And as Zhao is saying this, in between, you can see the blue spirit energy that is radiating off of Aang, traveling through and filling the canal that is surging from Zuko's side and coming towards Zhao's side of the screen. And it heads straight towards the gate where the Fire Nation came through, and it divides Zuko and Zhao. That is brilliant. Yes, i <laughs> I love looking. I love looking at the framing of things. But you see this blue energy after he says, "You're the blue spirit. You're the like. You're the enemy of the Fire Nation." You see that powerful energy coming from the Ocean Spirit behind Zuko, swelling towards and bursting through at the Fire Nation. Uh, Navy breaking up the two of them. I caught it in the background and I just, I couldn't, I couldn't not see it. That is a brilliant catch. Yeah. And I also like that Zuko escapes and rather than try and go after the Avatar again, he goes after Zhao. He wants Zhao this time. Yeah. And I think that his fight right now is, I think, more with Zhao than with Aang. I mean, number one, I think he recognizes that he can't really go toe-to-toe with Aang in this moment. I don't know. He's made a lot of poor decisions up until this moment, so I could see him going, hey, I think I could take it. Like, I don't know. But context, Ira was around. So maybe he's thinking a little clearer. Well, also, if he takes out Zhao, a lot of his problems go away. Yes, that is true. That is very true. And I think... It shows in this fight that, you know, the, the last time we saw these two characters go at it in, in the Agni Kai at Zhao's introduction, Zuko, Zuko won that fight, but 
he didn't know Zhao's fighting style. He didn't know his adversary. He happened to get the upper hand because he happened to listen to Iroh, and Iroh knew how to win the fight. But this time around, it's it's Zuko's game. He has Zhao completely red. He knows how Zhao is going to come at him. He knows what Zhao is going to expect him to do, and he is in control. Here's another thing is that he mentions earlier, if he gets a second chance at an Agni Kai with him, he will not hold back. And this is his second chance. Like, this man tried to kill him. He blew up his ship. He tried to kill him. Like, and in the most dirty way, it wasn't a way in which Zuko could respect. Like, at least kill me to my face. There was no honor in it. Exactly. At least kill me to my face, bro. (laughs) Oh my god. The music for the battle was just everything to me. Tell me what you heard in the music. <sighs> I heard the drums of the Fire Nation. I heard a little bit of Agni Kai. It was just it was it was a really cool mix. There was a lot going on in it. And um yeah, that was one of my favorite music bits through uh through this episode. Yeah, the Agni Kai music just pulling us right back to the first time these guys Based off, it is so good. Law is dead. We have to figure out what to do now. Aang is going off smiting people. Zuko is fighting Zhao. There's a lot going on, and we're trying to figure out how do we get this world back into balance. And I love that Ira was just automatically accepted by the kids there. <laughs> like, like when they're discussing like, all right, what do we do now? Ira, like they don't consider Iro a problem, which is pretty cool. I and mean, I think- he made it pretty clear when he showed up that like he's on their side, at least for this part. But I got to say, I think that's also part of, you know, Katara and Sokka and everything being kids is that they can see that change. Whereas I think if they were adults, they would be a little bit more wary of what his motives were um, besides what he just said in front of them. I think if they were adults, they would not have trusted and let him into that circle and that, um, that trust of like, all right, how do we solve this? Um, I think the fact that their children is important there i see that i also think the fact that it's iroh is important there because i feel like he's just generally very trustworthy like he but they don't know that i mean they don't know that they've been they've been attacked by iroh like they like they see they see iroh and zuko together attacking them all the time and i think katara is also not a very trusting person to begin with so the fact that katara doesn't just like encase iroh in ice and talk to him while he's in ice i think is really big of her I I agree, but what I was saying was I I don't think that they have I don't think they're necessarily looking back on their past interactions with Iroh for reasons on whether or not they should trust him. I think Iroh exudes the air of like a friendliness calmness and a trustworthiness. Yeah. Okay. He he makes you want to trust him. And I I think again I think being kids and being a little bit more malleable. At that age, it makes it easier for them to see that and to trust that and to, I mean, you know, kids can pick up on who the good people are and who the bad people are 
really quickly. And I think a lot quicker than adults, personally. Personally, I think kids have a better judge of character sometimes. I agree with that. Although, to your earlier point, uh, has Iroh attacked them? He has been next to Zuko when Zuko's attacking. Uh, the pirate is the pirate is what comes to mind. Um, the pirate episode where they've seen like him. I know he's he's been there, but I I yeah. don't think he's like he's never physically attacked them. No. Yeah. But uh, I think every interaction that they've had before with him has not been great. Fair. So uh, yeah. <laughs> um, but they're now deciding what to do. And Yue has the life of the moon spirit in her, and she decides to give it back. Oh, yeah. And four seasons place. Yep. As she gives the life force back. And we all just cry and fall apart. Yeah. Sokka, he just breaks my heart. Breaks my heart. And her body disappearing in his arms what like i don't know and then she gets to say goodbye i love spirit ua with her her look and she just seems so at peace and free and especially we've seen her up till now she's very covered up and when we see her as a spirit she doesn't have like that covering up she doesn't have the like she's free her arms are free she her her um, whole body language is much more open than it has been up to this moment. And she seems at peace. And uh, she says goodbye to Sokka, but she she says she'll always be with him. And just, I can't wait to look at every moment where Sokka and the moon are just, are just together. <laughs> In the frame together? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have an explanation for her disappearance, but it's a bit of a rant. Oh my god, really? It's a Star Wars rant. Oh, okay. Do you wanna? I, I, I don't know if I'll keep it in, but I'm gonna rant. Okay, go ahead, do it. So, yeah, when when Yue gives her spirit back to the moon, she disappears out of Sokka's arms, and it's totally a visual, like, they animate it the exact way that we see Obi-Wan and Yoda disappear into the Force in Star Wars. And this is a thing in that franchise that not everyone can do. In order to do it, you have to be like incredibly enlightened and at peace with your own demise and your journey into the Force. And it's only through that that piece of, of spirit that you can attain that level of afterlife. Otherwise, you just like your body just drops dead. Like most of the characters we see in Star Wars don't disappear; they just die. Um, in fact. Uh, Obi-Wan, Yoda, Luke, Leia, and Ben are the only ones that we see disappear. And they're the only characters that die at peace with not only their life, but their death. Ah. And I think Yue disappearing out of Sokka's arms is like, this is the writers telling us because these guys are all nerds. Everybody that writes and directs <laughs> the show is a nerd. Uh, they, The creators said when they were working on this show that like they wanted to make their own star wars lord of the rings harry potter like that's what they're going for with this and i have to believe that they're influenced by that in this scene and this is their way of saying like this is a decision 
that she is so at peace with it. Like she feels like she's fulfilling her own destiny. I feel like she feels more comfortable making this decision than her entire arranged marriage. Like this is, this is her, this is her ultimate goal. And I feel like, you know, especially when we learned that chief Arnok knew she would have to do, knew she would return at some point to the moon. Like he knew that she was on borrowed time. Like, he had told her the story of her birth for her to come to terms with the story she will write of her own death. This is her purpose to save, mm-hmm. to restore balance to the world yep. by restoring the moon. Yep. It's the most powerful thing she can do and she can choose to do. And it's her decision. She's more at, she is more at peace with this decision than anyone else around her. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so, it's so powerful. And especially, I find that Yue is a very quiet character for a lot of people. Like she, she is a softer character, a quiet character. And she comes from this culture where women don't fight. They are just the healers. They are, there are arranged marriages, all the stuff in which women are not really the actors. But in this moment, she gets to choose. She chooses her destiny. She choose like, I, I think. I think if she wanted to, she did not have to choose to return. But she sees this purpose, she sees this power, and she thinks this is the best option and this is what she wants to do. This is how she can give back to the world. It's beautiful. And I I usually have an issue with like uh, YA strong female characters and their self-sacrificing tendencies. Um, I usually have an issue with that. Uh, because there are some issues with that in, in those franchises and stuff. Um, but this is one that I have no qualms with because UA has power in this decision. I think I really strongly believe that her, her physical body disappearing is like, this is a visual representation of the fact that she is making this decision. Yep. Yes. Yes. I love that. Thank you for thank you for pointing that out and making that connection. It it, it helps it helps me with my feelings on it. So I I'm like glad. that. Yeah. Yeah. Just <laughs> suck it, Jong Jong. You is more enlightened. <laughs> <laughs> his old man just like trying to be his enlightened self, like brooding off in the corner, won't train the avatar, and you is like Nah, son, I'ma be the moon. That's my feeling. It's feelings more on that. about the journey than the destination. But I just here's another one where you have someone so young, um, yet so wise beyond their years. And it's really it's really beautiful. It's really powerful. And that she is she is grateful for her time with Sokka. Like that she got to have that before she before she could move on to the next part of her journey. I think one of my favorite, like big picture aspects of this show is it takes the stance time and time again that wis- like true wisdom is really simple stuff. It's not complex diatribes about the nature of good and evil. It's just simple actions, simple thoughts. It's and every like we can all have it if we listen. It's attainable. And it's powerful. And I think this is a powerful action by Yue that is going to stick with Sokka for the rest of his life. And 
I, of course, am going to point out those moments for the rest of this series. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, this is a moment of self-sacrifice that I feel like when Sokka offers himself to be a part of the front lines, this is kind of what he wanted to do. He was sacrificing himself for the greater cause. And Yue was upset about this. Yue was very upset about this, that Sokka would sacrifice himself like that. She was crying, but she's the one who ultimately makes that sacrifice so that he can go on and continue in his journey. Oh, man. That makes me wonder. What? So Yue knows where her journey ends Yeah. before she gets there. Mm-hmm. I have another hypothetical for you. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> if Sokka and the gang don't show up to the Northern Water Tribe, do you think Yue makes the same decision? I think she makes it even faster. <laughs> because she doesn't want to... Um, I, I think I think she could not... She could not envision herself moving on into the phase of her life that her father wanted her to, which was her arranged marriage and everything like that. She knew something was holding her back. And I think at one point she thought what was holding her back was Sokka, which is why she said she had confused feelings. Like she's like that she couldn't trust her feelings around him. And I think she didn't understand what was conflicting her. And I think the hardest part of moving on to becoming the moon spirit was letting go of Sokka. I don't know if that answers your question. Well, I was just, I was struck by your your statement that, and your observation, that she is upset by Sokka's desire to self-sacrifice. And I wonder if part of, part of what she gets out of and takes away from and learns from that relation, from her relationship with Sokka is some of that self-sacrifice. Hmm. Does he make, you know, any sort of impression on her? That that is that is what she needs to do. I think he does. I think that moment of putting himself at the front line shows that it, there is hope to this battle. Because I think before Aang and Sokka and Katara arriving at the North Pole, there was no hope for this hundred year war. Like I've said, I don't think Aang is nece- like Aang is the catalyst for this war. He is uh, he is a spark to get everyone else to join the fight, not necessarily to be the fight alone by himself. He needs everyone else behind him. And I think without them going to the North Pole, there was no reason to hope that this world would get better. This would be the end. It would just straight up be the end. There is no one picking up the torch. If she goes to be the moon spirit, there's no one picking up the torch. There's nothing. There was no hope in there being someone to continue on. But her making that sacrifice is so that someone, so that Sokka and Katara and Aang can continue on in the fight and in the battle. I feel like you're going to cry a little harder next time you watch that scene. Yeah, I am. Yeah, I am. (laughs) I I will say it is very hard. I, as much as Siege in the North, is in my rewatch, like my ultimate rewatch thing. It is very hard for me to watch the UA Saka goodbye. It is it's rough. It's it's hard. It's hard. And I remember as a kid, like I'm getting like a little misty eyed right now. I remember that goodbye and being like, that's not fair. 
that's not fair. He didn't have enough time with her. That's not fair. Why doesn't he get to be happy? That's not fair. I like, I, but I think that was an important lesson for me to learn as a kid. Does that make sense? Like, it's yeah. not always going to be fair. It was very important for me to see. And this is the first, this is the first part of this show that really shows death, that shows like multiple losses. Like we lose a lot in this episode. Like they, the Northern water tribe just barely gets out of this and is only by an act of God. It is only by, uh, you know, a giant spirit monster, uh, smiting the entire fire nation Navy. And even then, uh, even then after the fire nation Navy has reached the innermost sanctum. Yes. The holiest of holies for this society. Yeah. And even then, I feel like once Aang and the gang leaves, like, they are very susceptible to being attacked again. I don't think, like, eh, I think their defenses are down. I think they are a broken nation because of this fight. Like, as much as they, like, quote unquote, won, they are broken. They are no longer a safe haven. They are no longer a bubble. They are in it. They are scarred from this siege. There is no going back to the bubble that they had. It's brutal. It was a victory with cost. So much cost. Just Not even just UA, just so many people. And there are probably a lot more soldiers' lives that were lost in this battle. smiting Zhao gets his uh gets his comeuppance in the ocean spirit giant water grabby hand giant water grabby hand plunges uh, him into the depths now question yeah why does zuko offer his hand to Zhao? that's my question for you i don't have an answer i don't have a thought but i want i wanted to ask you why do you think zuko offers his hand to Zhao. He's been fighting him like he's he's wanted to let loose on him this entire time. For the same reason that Aang keeps saving Zuko. Because he's a good person. Ooh. That's, that's a good it. answer. That's that's yeah. it. It's wow. simple. Because he's a good person. Cool. Yeah, it was just I thought that was a really, really cool moment. I wanted to ask you that question. His anger and his rage may get the better of him from time to time. Yeah. He's, you know, he's a fiery guy. Filled with passion. So here we are. We are at the end. Finally, this has been... Yeah. A marathon. Long journey. Long journey. Um, And I just want to point out, Prince Zuko is wearing white. I feel like I have something here, but I am not sure. Uh, He's wearing this all-white outfit. And it just stuck out to me. Like you said, I have an eye for the costumes and stuff. Yeah, I think it's the Fire Nation wears a lot of like reds and and blacks and dark browns. I get that he was also wearing 
colors like this going into his battle to going into the Northern Water Tribe anyways, because it is more camouflage among, you know, snowy, but Yeah, but I think beyond that, like in this in this final scene, it it feels a little different. Yes. Yes, it hits different. And I think part of that is the battle is over. So like colors return to the world. So it stands out a bit more. But part of it is also that Zuko is different. Yeah. I love when he's just like, I'm tired. Like, I, like he just lays down and I'm tired. And I don't know. That's just a that's just a feel. I, I That's a mood that I understand. I think that when when he's fighting Katara and he breaks out of the ice prison, there's that visual similarity to Aang emerging from the iceberg. And I think it goes deeper than just a visual similarity. I think that the events of the siege of the North act as a sort of rebirth for Zuko. Yeah. And the white is kind of like a clean slate for him. Yeah. It's wiping the slate clean. It's like, all right, You've gone through all of this. There's always something. What's next? Because you're now you've decided you're going to you're going to walk away from this battle and come at it another way. Like, because I was like, all right, what do you want to do? Do you want to go capture the avatar again? He's right here. Like, what are we going to do? And Zuko is just so overwhelmed, exhausted that he's just like, I don't know. I just need to rest. I need to. He needs to do some soul searching. And and when you think about it, you know, he he emerges from the ice prison, he captures the Avatar, but he doesn't kill Katara. And earlier Zuko may have killed Katara. I don't know may, about that. May have. I don't may know have. about that, because I think okay, we talked you know I think we talked about that in Blue Spirit of like how close he is to like killing people, and he's not there yet. So I'll I'll drop that in in so that I can keep making my bigger point. Cool. Um but so he captures the Avatar and yeah. You know, he's adversarial with Zhao, but he doesn't take the Avatar back to the Fire Nation army that's right there. He takes the Avatar away from the Fire Nation army. And the first chance that he can sit down with Aang, he immediately starts opening up to him. When he breaks free from the really good rope, he doesn't try to capture Aang again. He goes after Zhao. I think there's a compelling case to make that when he bursts out of Katara's ice prison, he is bursting out of his own iceberg and he's bursting out a changed person. I, that's an interesting take. I think I think it will take the start of season two for me to really kind of see and like, let me let me uh, ruminate on that. Let me marinate that thought. And I want to see how that mixes with season two. Please do. Um, I also think it's important to note that Iroh kind of low-key gives Zuko a new quest. Explain. He's asking Zuko if they should, you know, go try to keep tracking down Aang, and Zuko says, no, I'm I'm tired. And Iroh says, a man deserves rest. I think he's, I think this is presenting Zuko's next journey. No, don't capture the Avatar, just be a man. I think it's more Zuko's next journey is to find peace with himself. Because I think he thought Peace with himself would be resolved by capturing the Avatar. And this is the first glimmer of hope for Iroh that uh, Zuko sees another option. Because this is the first, like, this is a time where there aren't many decisions, there aren't many times where Zuko decides, I'm not going to capture the Avatar. I'm going to take care of myself. 
But Iroh agrees with him every time. <laughs> but I I call back to when Zuko had a chance to either follow the Avatar or save Iroh from the kidnappers. And he chose to save Iroh. And that was that window of hope that there was something more than just capturing the Avatar in his life. That the blinders were off for a moment. So I think Iroh sees that window and he's going to he's going to encourage that. He's going to feed that idea. It's like I think of it as like a like a sourdough starter in a way. <laughs> that little idea and Iroh just has to like feed it every so often and feed it the right amount to get it to grow and uh and kind of uh rise in the way that it should. I get that and I agree with that and I think Iroh has seen that that disconnect and that struggle within Zuko between chasing after the avatar versus finding his own peace. And I think I genuinely think that from Iroh's perspective that that quest of, you know, be a man as as I'm claiming it's presented here at the end of the episode is the same thing is indistinguishable from find your own peace. I think Iroh equates those two together. Before we finish, though, one more thing. Right at the end of the episode, Paku's on his way to go south to, like, help out down south and increase those relations and see Grand Grand and all that fun stuff. And Katara's all like, but what about Ang? And Paku is like, you're his new master. <laughs> yes! Master Katara, she leveled up again! Yes! I love it! And that just, for her, I think she has she has natural uh, natural ability and talent, but also the hard work and dedication. And I think it's really, it's a really great moment of validation for her. Because I think back to when she first tried to teach Aang how to waterbend. And she felt so insecure in what she was doing. And she felt so behind and Aang had all this natural talent and she felt so unsure of what she was doing and if she could even do it. So to have that validation from Paku saying, you can, you can do this. You are more than capable of doing this. And I trust you to do this. Oh, I, that's beautiful. Beautiful. This is Katara's story. I just, I'm so proud of her and her journey and that season one has really seen her come into her own. She has reached she has reached a peak before even Aang has. So it's really cool. I'm so proud of her and that she nailed it. And I cannot wait to see uh, Master Katara put Aang to the task. I can't wait either. And she's just, uh, I'm, I'm also just so excited to see all the styles that she comes up with. Because I think the thing is, she's learned from Paku, she's learned from the scroll, she's learned from, uh, you know, people around her in a way. But 
here she gets to come into her own. And I think this is the confidence boost that she needed to create and to create her own style and to be able to balance healing at like the, her healing water bending and her fighting and her defense. She is going to be the ultimate combination of all of those bending styles through water bending. So I am ready. I'm ready for that. Thank you for listening to the Pie Show. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can find our show notes at thepieshow.fm slash 19. If you'd like to reach us, you can send us a tweet at the Pie Show or email us at thepieshowpodcast at gmail.com. And next time we will have our season one retrospective. I am so excited for that, looking at like the big picture season as a whole. Yeah, uh, I'm going to... I want to do a few little key moments about Katara's journey. And uh, hey, remember, Colton, your homework to point out your essentials for Colton's indefinitive <laughs> rewatch list. Because Kelly has hers set. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm working on it. Good. Azula, Azula, Azula. <laughs> Silly listener, you thought we wouldn't talk about that scene at the end. I love my Azula so much. Such and- a good setup for next season. Oh, dun, dun, dun. It is so cool. I really love how we go back and we have that like little flash of, Azu- of Azula uh, earlier on where Zuko's talking about her. And the only other time we've really seen her before is in the flashback of the original Agni Kai and then going into the uh, openings, opening scene where they show water, earth, fire, air. Like that part, we can recognize Azula as a rewatcher. So this is the first like, here she is, boys. Here she is, world. Here's Azula. Yeah, that's how she's entering in the musical, sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I do really love that when we get that big reveal on her, mm-hmm. it's like the main Fire Nation theme, because she does get a music theme yes. later on. Yes, but she we're does. not ready for that yet. No. We still need to establish her as like the big bad from the Fire Nation that we have to deal with. I think what's important about that is that we need to establish her personality before we can give her music, because I feel... Her music and her personality are tied so tightly together. Wholeheartedly agree with that. Yeah. So let's give her the generic Fire Nation drums and say the Fire Nation is coming. And then we'll start to learn the uh, otherworldly creature that is Azula. Because <laughs> this is not, if you thought Zhao was not natural, oh my goodness. She is definitely her father's daughter. She was born lucky. Whew. I'm ready. And again, if this is someone who Zuko has talked about earlier as, you know, everything can- comes easy to her. She is incredibly talented. She has never had to work at it ever. But it doesn't sound like she's someone who didn't put the work in. You know what I mean? Mm, the way yeah. he talks about it. 
Like she is naturally talented, but she also put the work in and that's what makes her a force to be reckoned with. There is like a reverence and fear when Zuko mentions Azula briefly. So what that means to Team Avatar, who are we going to find out? Listeners, if you can't tell, she's one of my favorite characters. (laughs) I think it's safe to say she's your favorite character. I don't know. It's a toss up. It's a toss up between her and Toph. Uh, my two favorite characters come into play in season two and uh, I really love season two for that reason. It's going to be a good ride. Also, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that we hear Ozai's voice by the brilliant Mark Hamill. Yes. So Mark Hamill gets to play two characters in this Siege of the North. Yeah. Yeah. Very got- different characters. Very different characters. He He also was not credited with the baboon, by the way. Um, I will point that out. The creators mentioned during the DVD audio commentary for the episode that he is voiced by Mark Hamill, but it's just not listed because he was already there for Ozai. (laughs) Gotta love when it works out like that. Yeah, it's it's so cool. We're getting we're getting little pieces of this overarching villain that we haven't. It's really cool to hear like have this build up and hear about him and just not get him yet it takes a while it's a slow burn 